to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Dylan William. Now, Dylan first appeared on the show back in 2016, and his appearance marked a bit of a turning point for my podcast. Prior to my 2016 interview with Dylan, the show had a bit of a niche, dare I say geeky, audience. But Dylan coming on brought the show out of my maths teacher bubble and attracted thousands of new listeners, both maths teachers and non-maths teachers from all over the world. His appearance also helped me lure in some of the world-class guests who I have since been lucky enough to interview, including the Bjorks, Doug Lemov and Daisy Christodoulou. After all, when Dylan has been on the show, how can you say no? So before I introduce this episode, I just wanted to publicly thank Dylan for saying yes when I asked him to come onto a show two years ago that nobody really knew a lot about. He didn't ask for listening figures or what was in it for him, he just said yes. And for that, I will be forever grateful. And now Dylan is back, this time to talk about his new book, Creating the Schools Our Children Need, Why What We're Doing Now Won't Help Much, and What We Can Do Instead. And in a wide-ranging conversation, we covered the following and much, much more besides. Why is it difficult to hire better teachers? And what selection criteria would Dylan use if he were a head of department interviewing a prospective teacher? Why is Dylan not convinced that reducing class sizes will improve student outcomes as much as we might think it would? Why might attempts to replicate the success of other higher performing countries and regions also not have the desired effect? Then we turn our attention to all things curriculum, knowledge and skills. And Dylan responds to a comment about an extract from his book that went a little bit viral after I tweeted it out. Why does Dylan believe textbooks might be key in improving student outcomes? Should students actually be encouraged to recall number facts in timed conditions? What are the practical applications of forgetting being an important part of remembering? Is Dylan as obsessed with the hypercorrection effect as I am? How do teachers become experts? Does the way Dylan and Paul Black's work on formative assessment has been used in school upset him? And then, just when we're getting on rather well, we have a minor disagreement about whether formative assessment is a skill or not. Now, there's always a danger when you invite a guest on the show for the second time that the sequel will be more Speed 2 Cruise Control than The Godfather Part 2. But I'm thrilled to say that Dylan is much more Al Pacino than Jason Patrick. Just like the first time, I learned so much from talking to Dylan, and I hope this will turn out to be one of those episodes that is continually revisited by maths teachers, teachers of other subjects, senior leaders, and anyone with an interest in how to help our students. I'll reflect on my thoughts from our conversation, just as I always do, in my takeaway at the end of the interview. Now, obviously, if you buy one book as a result of this episode, make it Creating the Schools Our Children Need. And indeed, if you buy two books, just get yourself a second copy. 
But if you're interested in reading about 12 years of math teaching mistakes, then maybe take a chance on my book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, which is available from all good and all evil bookstores. And thanks so much to all of you who have bought and reviewed the book. It means the world to me. Anyway, I will deprive you no longer as I introduce Dylan William. Now, just a word of warning, the sound quality is pretty good throughout this interview, especially seen as the conversation was taking place over different continents. However, when Dylan talks about the importance of delaying feedback, his microphone goes a bit funny and it's quite hard to hear his answer. However, I am turning this into a positive and suggest you treat it like one of Bjork's desirable difficulties, hence listening extra specially hard and taking in Dylan's words even more than you would have done if they were perfectly audible. Maybe I should have claimed it was deliberate. Anyway, enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Dylan. So, uh, firstly, welcome back to the podcast, and thank you for making the time to speak to us. Um, is everything well with you? Great, thanks. Yeah, good to be back. Superb. Um, and now, last time you were on the show, which was back in 2016, we, we did your speed dating questions, so we found out about your favourite number. We found out about your kind of secret life as, as a bit of a rock star before uh, entering the world of education. So, if listeners want to check that out, they can dig back into the former episode. But before we we, we go into talking about your book more of a kind of self-indulgent selfish question really Dylan I'm just interested about your, your writing process well whenever you sit down to to write a book like this what, what does a day of writing look like for you do you have kind of habits routines treats you give yourself how do you set about writing a book like this there's no pattern that I stick to all the time anymore uh, I, I learned really to write when I was doing my PhD part-time while still a lecturer at King's College London and I just got into the habit of cycling to work and then writing a thousand words every day between 7 and 8.30 or whatever and I just got into the habit of just writing so I, I discovered that really the important thing is just to sit down and write and even if you haven't got anything to say just sit down and write the more you the more you practice it the better you get and there's a wonderful quote that I treasure from Michel Foucault, the French philosopher. He said, if I knew what I wanted to say before I began to write, I would not have the courage to begin. <laughs> he said, I write in order to change myself and not to think the same as I thought before. And I so like for me, that. writing is a process of transformation. You think you've thought it through, but when you start to write it, it's clear that you don't really understand it as well as you thought you did. So I love that process. My biggest vice as a writer probably is I go down the rabbit hole. Uh, I was researching the Dunning-Kruger effect and I found, I, I spent about a day trying to find the original newspaper article in the Pittsburgh <laughs> Gazette, found out that it wasn't attributed. I actually wrote to the journalist who was um, credited with a story to check I had my facts right and my wife teases me for being obsessive about checking facts in that way so I can often spend you know half a day on one line of a, an article and of course nobody notices no, nobody realizes that that took uh, half a day to research <laughs> it's, it's, fa 
it's fascinating, Dylan, and, it, and just just with that first thing you said there, the reason I asked you this is I was just listening to a podcast with um, Daniel Pink, who um, wrote ma- many books, but but also wrote Drive about motiv- motivation that I'm a big, big fan of. And he says the same thing. And he says one of his favorite quotes is sometimes you have to write to figure out what you think. And I think there's so there's so much in that. I think a, a mistake I've made in the past is I, I sat down and I try and kind of structure everything out first and then start to write. But but when you write, it helps you kind of consolidate your ideas, formulate your ideas and also change your ideas as, as well. Would you agree? Well, I think it's different for different people. And I think this is one of the few aspects of learning styles that have some merit. Some people like to get the big picture first and sort out of the structure and then work on the details. I, I'm very much a serialist. I like to start at the beginning and work my way through to the end. And often the downside is you end up in a place where you didn't expect. Yes. So this book, uh, I had it mapped out. I knew what I wanted it to be about. But as I wrote it, uh, the last four chapters were completely different from what I'd envisaged. The book did not end up where I thought it would end up. Flipping it. Well, that you've left us a bit of a cliffhanger there, Dylan. We'll, we'll dig into that when we get to, to the end of the book. But I suppose now now's a good time to ask you why you wanted to write it. Because, it, I mean, I've read all your books. And would I be right in saying that this is the, the first kind of mass market book you, you've written, if that's the right phrase for it? This this is aimed not just at teachers, but, but, at, but at other kind of stakeholders. Well, would that be right? That's absolutely right. It's the first book I've written for uh, a non-specialist readership. And why why was that, Dylan? Why is now the time to do that? It's more to do with where rather than why. So I've been living in the United States off and on for about 15 years now. And as I've got to understand the United States system better and better, I've become convinced that solutions that will work in many other parts of the world simply will not work here because of the governance structures in education. So in Australia, in Canada, you have school districts, you have state or provincial authorities that exert quite a strong influence. In England, you had local authorities. In Scotland, you still have local authorities that are a really powerful influence over what happens in schools. In England now, with the rise of multi-academy trusts, you've again got these points of purchase. You can actually work with a multi-academy trust and affect practice in literally dozens of schools. And the thing that I took a long time to understand about America is that really almost all the important decisions are made at the school board level. So what people don't realize is that school boards in the United States are not like local authorities. They're often very small. Many school boards only have a single school. So imagine this. You've got a local authority that has one school with about 600 students, and they have their own arrangements for teacher pay, for teacher pensions, and for curriculum. You joke. The idea is, no, every, and, and the, the scale is, is just staggering because you have some school districts like New York City with 1.2 million students. You've got districts like Los Angeles Unified with 800,000 and then there's three or four, Chicago, Miami-Dade, Broward and Clark County in Nevada, which have about 400,000 students. And that's the, those are the kinds of districts that get the big attention yes but you've also got lots and lots of school districts with a single school some have no schools at all but raise taxes to buy places in local school districts the modal school district in america has six schools it has four elementary schools one middle school and one high school and and it'll have its own conditions of service for teachers it'll have its own pension arrangements very often 
It'll have its own curriculum arrangements. And so I became convinced the more I worked with the federal authorities and with state governments in the United States that they really weren't having much of an impact. The only way to change what's happening in schools is to work at the school district level. And it's challenging because there are 13,491 of them. <laughs> Flipping out, Dylan. And again, this this is my uh, kind of ignorance here, but would they, if the, the curriculum may be different within these schools and the, the teachers paying conditions, but would, the, would there still be national exams that the students are working towards? Well, some states have required graduation arrangements. So the, in, in Florida, for example, you can't get the high school diploma without passing a, a test of your knowledge of algebra. But there are often workarounds for that that mean the students often get their high school diploma without passing the exam. So many states, most states, impose tests on their students in order to get money under the No Child Left Behind Act. So students in grades three through eight are tested every year. Uh, but they're kind of strange things because they're not really designed to test students. They're often held in March with, you know, a quarter of the year still to go. Yes. So they really aren't tests of whether the students have learned what they need to learn that year. States have standards. These are the things that students are meant to be achieving in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade and so on. But how you choose to get the students there, the curriculum, if you like, is very much a matter for the districts. Some districts were constrained by the state as to what kinds of books they could buy. So the big adoption states were California, Texas, and Florida. In those states, for many years, public funding could only be used to buy textbooks that the state had approved. That didn't stop you from buying other textbooks if you had charitable funding, for example. And in fact, those arrangements have become less and less uh, burdensome because now states are realizing that it doesn't make sense to try to restrict the, the choice of textbooks that much. So it's quite possible for schools, to, sorry, for districts to be making their completely uh, unfettered choice about what curriculum to follow in their schools. Flipping out, Dylan. But as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm thinking, obviously, this is a book written about in an American context. But whilst you're writing it and researching it, did you have in mind that this is going to have implications and, and advice and takeaways far beyond um, the US context? Yes, I, I think I always realised that, uh, but I didn't think about that while I was writing. I was writing very clearly for people who were involved in the governance of education at a local level with no specialist educational expertise, uh, people who are school board members in America, they might be governors, as we call them in, in, the, in England. So for me, uh, people have told me that they find it very useful outside the US context, but it's solving a particular problem that the US has in a more acute way than everybody else, which is a very large number of very small bodies making really important decisions about what happens in their schools without much expert input. And so the problem, I think, is very much in sharp focus in the United States. I hope the solutions are relevant much more widely. I see. And if anything, the solutions possibly will be easier to implement in other countries aside from America. So to take the UK, for example, would that be a fair point? Well, it depends how the evolution of multi-academy trusts proceeds, I think. It depends whether the local authorities are seen to have a role. So I think for education purposes, it's important to distinguish England from Scotland, Northern Ireland yes. and Wales. Uh, 
So I think in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, certainly, because local authorities are still a big part of the picture. In England, it's not so clear, and multi-academy trusts in many senses seem to be taking the role of the local authority. They are appointing people to think about curriculum and about research. And so it, it could be that it's actually quite straightforward. Um, but it may be that this book is actually just as useful uh, when you've got these isolated academies making decisions about what to do with their students uh, without much input from outside. So I, I hope that it would be helpful in that context too. Super. Well, I, I certainly agree with that, Dylan. Um, right. Well, let, let, let's dig into this because the kind of after your introduction section and the, the kind of next big chunk of the book is about solutions that don't work. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm glancing over these and I'm thinking, why on earth wouldn't that work? And I'm saying this for every single one of them. And it's it's really kind of blown my mind this. So I just want to pick out four of these. Um, and the first that, that you say is a solution that won't work is to hire better teachers. And I just wonder, Dylan, what, why is this difficult? to do why is it difficult to hire better teachers and crucially if, if you found yourself in the position of a head of department um, and you were looking to hire a new teacher well what selection criteria can we use well first of all i, I think i'm quite careful to say not that these things won't work but they won't work very much they won't yes. help much yes so i think the biggest claim i'm making in the book is not that these things won't work but the impact on student achievement will be small expensive and there are better things we can do with the money. Yes. But it, but if we come to the issue of um, hiring better teachers, of course we want to hire better teachers. Uh, there's no doubt that teachers who know more about their subject do get slightly better results. But the effects are quite modest. It turns out that if you have a teacher who is very knowledgeable, and let's compare to the average teacher, this teacher is in the, in the top one-sixth of all teachers of that subject in the nation. So compared to the average teacher, students taught by that more knowledgeable teacher will make two or three weeks more progress per year. And is that, sorry, Dylan, is it, when you say more knowledgeable, is that kind of subject specific knowledge of, it's, say, maths, for example, or is it knowledgeable about pedagogy and so on? It's knowledgeable about the subject at the level at which you're teaching it. So it's not, you know, do you know university mathematics? It's how well you know the mathematics at the level that you're teaching it. Got it. So, so these skills, first of all, these skills that teachers have don't seem to be a major part of what makes some teachers more effective than others. It's important. It's not trivial. But this is a very small part of the variation. So, so typically, certainly at elementary or primary level, and it's probably even at middle school level, it looks like teacher subject knowledge is less than 20% of teacher quality. So whatever it is that makes some teachers much more effective than others, it's not mainly subject knowledge. So obviously people need to know the subject at, which, at the level at which they're teaching it. Um, but it, it's a surprisingly weak predictor of how much students will learn in that teacher's classroom. So to take your, your question, who, what, what I look for, the thing I would look for most of all is somebody who is, first of all, interested in children. When I used to run a mathematics PGCE course, I knew I had trouble with any teachers or prospective teachers who said, when I asked them, why do you want to be a teacher? They said, I love maths. I want to pass on my enjoyment of maths to others. That was always a bit of a red flag for me because I discovered that those people often only wanted to teach the top sets and right. A-level students. They love the subject first and the students second. So for me, the thing that I look for, first of all, is a real desire to work with young people. 
and the subject that they come with is the mechanism for doing that. Now, I also want them to be passionate about the subject. I would love them, if they're a maths teacher, being active in recreational mathematics, of doing their own mathematical problem solving or investigation in their own time. That seems to me to you know, be the equivalent of an English teacher who is a writer or a poet. So I think that having teachers being passionate about the subject they teach is important. But I think trumping all of those is a teacher who is just willing to accept that teaching is so difficult that you need to continue to improve. Yes. So for me, the deal breaker is the teacher who thinks that they're good and doesn't need to get any better. That for me would be a real uh, disqualifying characteristic because even if they're good, there'll be a corrosive influence within the school. And more importantly, I think, when they fail, and all teachers fail because we hope for so much, when those teachers fail, they blame the students. So for me, the idea of just constantly wanting to improve yourself, to push yourself because of your students, is the thing I'd look for in a, in a, in a if I was a head of department trying to appoint a maths teacher, for example. And and you'd get that from a kind of just an interview, just a conversation with them, far more than you would from a lesson observation. Would that be true? Would you still bother watching them teach a sample lesson? I think I probably would. I'd be very skeptical that I could learn much from it, but I think I would do that just as just to sort of set an agenda that you know we we're interested in open classrooms. You know, we 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 want teachers to teach with their doors open so that people can pop in. You know, I, I, that would be the kind of atmosphere I'd be trying to create. But I'd be asking them about, you know, tell me a lesson that went really well. And if it was one where the students listened attentively, I know I've got problems. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. for me, uh, you know, a good lesson is not one in which you get through the content you plan to deliver and the students are quiet. It's one in which the students actually learn something. And how do you know that? Yes. No, no, fantastic. That makes perfect sense, Dylan. Well, the next thing you say that, uh, again, is, and just to reiterate your point, you're not saying this won't work, but there are perhaps more effective things we can do, or it's more, it's quite difficult to do, is to get rid of less effective teachers. And my question here is, you've kind of touched a little bit on, on observations in your previous answer, but you also chuck exam results into the mix here as, as something that's perhaps not going to accurately identify less effective teachers. Why would that be the case, Dylan? Well, let's look at the three things we might do. And I think the big three categories are observing teachers teaching, looking at the exam results their students get, and student perception surveys. Yes. So lesson observations are really unreliable. Heather Hill and her colleagues at Harvard estimate that to get a reliable rating of a teacher, not just not an accurate one, just one that doesn't change when you see a different lesson, you would need to see a teacher teaching 30 different lessons Jeez. or have each teacher teaching six different lessons and observed by five independent observers. So you need 30 independent observations to get a stable rating of that teacher's quality. Well, that's incredible, but, Dylan. That, that must have surprised you, that, did it? It did. But then I also know that having... Uh, you know, having taught parallel classes, uh, particularly in year seven and eight before the schools I w worked in introduced setting, you know, in year seven and eight, you might actually have two year seven classes that are mixed ability. They're equivalent in terms of achievement and the same lesson. You go and teach it with one class. It goes superbly with the other class. It is a disaster. Yes. And it's similar students, same lessons, same teacher. If you saw me teach the first lesson, you'd think I was a superb teacher. If you saw me teach the second lesson, you'd think I was an idiot. And it's just the same teacher just being buffeted by those chance circumstances. So uh, 
I was partly surprised that the actual number was so big. Yes. Um, but I wasn't surprised by the fact that lessons are not lesson observations are not particularly reliable. Can, can I also it, just on that? Sorry, Don. Just before we move yeah. away from observations, the other thing um, you said that really surprised me in the book. But when you think about it, it makes sense. And I think it's almost one of those unsaid things that um, it's far easier to for a teacher to look good in a lesson when they're teaching a high attaining set, a motivated high attaining set, than a lower attaining, less motivated set. Did, did, and again, do, do you know what I mean when I say that that's kind of a almost an unsaid thing because it should be well you, if you're a good teacher you should be able to teach any class do you know what and i mean? probably can and you and that could be true all i'm saying is that the observers of yes. those lessons are swayed by things that have nothing to do with the teacher so let's, let's just quantify that if you've got five sets equally sized sets sets one through five if you are teaching set one you are six times as likely to get a top rating on a four-point scale for your teaching Six times as likely to get a top rating as if you're teaching the bottom set. A flipping heck. Jeez. So, I mean, that's it. I mean, that has huge implications, right? That has implications for, for interview lessons. It has implications for a lot of performance management. Um, certainly in England, is is kind of predicated on how well you do in, in observed lessons. That That's big implications, that, right? Absolutely. And it just shows that lesson observations are a pretty poor guide to the long-term learning that takes place. Now, I knew that to be the case, by the way, for a long time. What happened you know, much more recently than that was I figured out why. And it comes from the work of Paul Kirshner, this idea that learning is a change in long-term memory. Yes. So when you're observing a lesson, what you're trying to do is to figure out how much of what is happening in this classroom right now will these students remember in six weeks time and when you think that's what you're trying to do it's a lot less surprising that it's so hard yes yes well okay so if we, we say lesson observations are going to be difficult to identify less effective teachers then the next one is exam results still and surely that's got to be a bit more reliable it probably is but it's also biased so, first of all, we can't just use raw exam results. We have to use progress measures of some kind, yes. value-added. And although value-added measures are, are really pretty unreliable for individual students, um, they are much more stable for groups of students. But even there, there are real problems. So, first of all, depending on the models you use, one paper by um, Dan Goldhaber and his colleagues showed that if you are teaching um, a group then whether you were regarded as a good teacher or a bad teacher depended on which statistical model was used to evaluate you. And 9% of the teachers who were rated as the very best teachers in one model were rated as the very worst teachers in another equally justifiable model. So the, the assumptions that are made have very different outcomes for different teachers. So most teachers get the same rating on both models, but there's a number of teachers who get very different ratings, and that means that they are unstable guides to evaluation of teachers. But I think the more profound issue, even if we could improve our value-added ratings, is that every teacher builds on the foundations laid by the teachers who taught the students in previous years. Yes. So where I, where I live in Florida, we have reading and writing in our third grade standards, but only reading is tested. Now in, in fourth grade, both reading and writing are tested. So if you're a fourth grade teacher, you hope 
the, the teacher who had your students in third grade has done some work on writing. There was no incentive for her to do that because she, the third grade teacher, is evaluated solely on the children's performance on a reading test. So there's a strong incentive for that third grade teacher to ignore writing completely. Yes. But the fourth t- grade teacher is now in trouble if the third grade teacher's done no writing because she's starting from scratch. And that happens at every step of the education system. Every teacher builds on the foundations laid by the teachers who taught the students in previous years. We can't capture all the things that good teachers do to prepare students for the next step of learning. And that's why value-added measures are, in principle, never going to give us the kind of accurate judgment of a teacher's quality. I think just, just on that, when I was reading yeah. your, when I was reading the example you gave there in the book about the, the teaching, reading and writing, it made me think as well, and I don't know whether this is math specific or not, but certainly when you know you've not got a class that you're taking through to the next year. So if I have a year eight class and I know for whatever reason I'm not going to be following them through to year nine, certainly in the past, there's almost an incentive not to kind of teach them for the long term. So teach them methods. And a classic example of this is solving linear equations. You could teach a a year seven or a year eight class, a method for solving linear equations that will be absolutely fine for all the linear equations they're going to meet in year seven and eight. And you could do that using function machines, or I think of a number and reverse operations and so on. But as soon as they get to year nine or year 10, they're in big, big trouble because all of a sudden the variable starts appearing on the other side of the equation and negative negatives start coming into play. Whereas if you're in it for the long haul, you can teach them a, a more difficult method of balancing both sides and doing the same thing to, to both uh, sides of the equation. That's perhaps not going to lead to as as greater performance in year seven and eight, but it's going to be better for their long term achievement. And again, I don't know if, if that that example exists across other subjects, but that for me seems to be something that fits into this as well, that it's it depends on the history of how kids have been taught before very much determines how successful you're going to be teaching them in, in any given point of time, if that makes sense. It does. And there are examples, certainly from higher education. Uh, from the Air Force in the US, for example, where the people who were specialist maths teachers uh, often got less favorable ratings for the from their students at the end of the first year. But even when they were taught by different teachers in the second year, they did better. Yes. So, so, so often students prefer being given the, the, the tricks, the tips, the, the simple version. Uh, which helps them be successful in the short term, but is an unsound foundation for moving forward in the future. And we've seen the same thing. You can, there are studies of, of economics teaching in American universities where the teachers who go do the best in terms of student scores on the first year often have students doing much less well in the second year. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether how much of an effect that that you describe is is a feature of, of teaching in England. I think there's a, probably a counter example, a counter case. It may not be that teachers teach badly when they know they only have the students for a year. I think they're less likely to do the long-term thing. So I remember uh, a class that I taught when I, I took them over when they were in what we now call year seven. And, uh, you know, for the whole of year seven, basically, we were just fighting the whole time. <laughs> they, they learned almost nothing. <laughs> and, you know, it was just me trying to get them to, to have established decent ways of working, 
and understanding what it meant to be you know, respectful of somebody else's views in a maths classroom, for example. And, you know, the whole of that year seven was a fight. And, I'm, and the exam results at the end of the year seven were very disappointing compared to other year seven classes in that school. Another one in which I taught that was a very good class. But you know what? We fought our battles. We reached our negotiated settlements. And by the time they were in year 10, they were one of the best classes I've ever taught. (laughs) And I probably wouldn't have put in the time and worked on those longer term goals if I'd known I was only teaching them for a year. So it may not be that I'm teaching badly. It may not. It may just be that I'm just not going to invest in the longer term if I'm only going to have them for a year. It's, it's interesting this, Dylan, because there's there's an argument, isn't there, for teachers to specialise in teaching a, a particular year group or a particular um, ability or achievement level of students. So you, you get teachers who specialise at teaching the old year 11 GCSE CD borderline group, or you get teachers who specialise at teaching bottom set year nine um, students. And I can see the argument for kind of narrowing your expertise and becoming really, really good at that specific type of teaching. But then again, to use your example, there's an argument for actually taking classes through all the way. So following that class through in year seven, year eight, year nine, year 10 and year 11. Do do you have an opinion on on what's better? Should, Should teachers focus on particular year groups or should there should there be this more kind of long term approach of, of kind of spreading the, your expertise across different different year groups? I don't have any strong view, and I'm because the research is just very ambiguous in this area. So first of all, we don't know if if there are some teachers who really are better. I mean, people say these things, but I, I the evidence isn't that strong. So I'm not sure that there is evidence that some that that teachers are are really good at teaching one kind of student. The work of um, Simon Burgess of Bristol and Helen Slater suggests that teachers who are better on average are better for all students across the board. So I'm not sure about that. But even if it were true, even if there were some teachers who are better for certain kinds of students, there's the issue of how you deploy them. So if you just mix the teachers up all the time, then every student gets a, a, a diet of some great teaching and some less good teaching, while if you actually focus and have the students stay with the same teacher for three or four years, then some students get a wonderful experience and some students get a less good experience. And I'm really not sure which of those is better. Do we, you know, do, do we actually allow some students to be taught by weak teachers for many years or do we, do we spread the misery around? I just don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. But I guess you'd hope that if, if, like you say, if a teacher stayed with a class for five years, that they would become more effective with that class because they, they, for behavior reasons, for just knowledge of, of the individual students and so on. But I guess if they are, yeah, if they are a weak teacher and they don't develop for whatever reason, then it's, it's not fair on those students for, for five years, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. I just think it's, the, the variables are so difficult to control. Absolutely. That I think we're, I don't think we'll ever have clear evidence on this and we have to make professional judgments about it. It's it's a tricky job, this teaching, Dylan. It it really is. Um, The the next one I just wanted to talk about. Now, this one, Dylan, when when I read this, I thought come on surely this is an absolute banker for working and, and I, I don't think you say it's not going to work but I, I think my reading of it is that it's, it's not going to be as effective as we hope and it's going to be expensive and that's reducing class sizes well why might reducing class sizes not lead to a lead to a significant improvement in student outcomes as we hope i think there are two main issues 
first of all, there are some people who go around saying that class size reduction doesn't work, and I think that's incorrect. I think that most teachers would get better results for their students if they had smaller classes. But the empirical research suggests that these effects are quite strong for very young children, and they're much weaker for older children. And some people just say, well, that's it. And I'm thinking, well, why? So I decided to investigate more carefully. And here's my theory. Uh, when class sizes are reduced for reception year one, year two, you get a big effect because those teachers are typically interacting with individuals or small groups of, of children. And therefore, when a teacher has a fewer, a fewer children in the class, each child gets more attention. If you look at the typical teaching in secondary schools, there's a lot of teachers standing at the front of the class, leading a whole class discussion, for example. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I think that can be very, very effective. But the point is, it's not going to be any better with 20 than it is with 30. Yes. So unless teachers change the way they teach, then you may not get the benefits of smaller classes. So here's the important issue. Is the class size reduction program accompanied by professional development for the teachers? Well, in most cases that have been studied, the answer is no, because this pushes up the cost of the experiment. So I would say that most of the experiments on class size reduction are a waste of time and money because they don't give us insights into what might be. And this is the line I always use. Educational re research will never tell you what might be. It'll only tell you what was. <laughs> and, if, and, if you, and if you reduce class size without supporting teachers to change the way that they teach, then you shouldn't be surprised if not much changes. But you know, this is the importance of the work of people like Peter Blatchford. And he did this huge study on, on class size and found that they didn't make much difference. But then he decided to actually say, well, so how can we actually have teachers taking advantage of smaller classes? So he immediately started thinking about what kinds of professional development teachers might need in order to take advantage of smaller classes and teach more effectively. So I think that's the kind of thing we need to be doing. But as I said, because those research studies are more expensive to conduct, they're less prevalent. And because they're less prevalent, when people do meta-analyses of these kinds of studies, they find that the average effect is small because they're averaging very different kinds of studies. The second reason the class size reduction can be ineffective is, and people forget this, when you reduce class size, you need more teachers. <laughs> so if you've got 120 students in a year group, then if class size is 30, you need four teachers. If it's, if it's 20, you need six. See, so typically reducing class size by 30% increases the number of teachers needed by 50%. And the crucial thing then is, how good are these teachers that we're adding? So if they're as good as the teachers you already got, then class size reduction can work. But if they are as bad as the bottom 20% of teachers you've got, then class size reduction will actually lower student achievement. Because what you're doing is exposing more students to weak teaching. And so where I live in Bradford County in, in Florida, where the state mandates in its constitution a class size of 22, what reducing class size created lots of jobs, particularly in nice, rich, affluent areas. And many, and many good teachers flocked to get these better paid jobs in rich areas. And therefore it made it much more difficult for us to recruit teachers in our county. So people forget these kinds of system effects. Uh, the, the famous Tennessee star study only required an extra 50 teachers to run the experiment. 
And, you know, it's plausible you could find 50 reasonably good teachers to do an, ex an, an experimental class size reduction. But when you're talking about an extra 100,000 teachers across the whole education system, it's much less plausible that those 100,000 teachers will be as good as the ones you've already got. And this is why I keep on saying that everybody in education, particularly the school leaders, need to become critical consumers of educational research. Class size reduction might work in one context where there's a whole slew of people dying to get into teaching of very high quality and it might not work where teacher recruitment is a real problem and if you reduce class size you're gonna to have to end up giving teaching permits to people who really shouldn't be teachers yes. and so that's why education leaders can't just say somebody's done a meta-analysis and proved the answer is x because it might not work in your district you have to take a view of your context was this research conducted in context like mine what are the crucial variables here? Are the conditions that are needing to be met for this to be successful present in my context? And that's why, you know, ultimately, educational research will never tell people what to do in education, because you have to take into view in, of whether the, the right variables are in place for these things to work. Flipping it. Yeah, absolutely spot on, Dylan. And well, I guess I guess it brings us to the the, the kind of final thing you identify. And I, I've I've a particular interest in this one. Um, just I interviewed um, about a month or so ago now Lucy Cree and the the author of Cleverlands because it's it's a real hot topic certainly um, in the UK as I'm sure it is in the US about learning from other countries, so taking the best features of some of these higher performing regions and countries and trying to implement in the uh, implement them in our uh, particular circumstances. And there there are two points. Um, from your book that really really stood out to me and I just wondered if you could talk a little a bit about them the first was Finland and it's absolutely it's, it's a wonderful point you make you say that the extremely high levels of achievement in fin that Finland demonstrated in 2003 and 2006 were probably the result of policy decisions made in the late 80s and the late 90s therefore anyone who visited Finland in 2006 was learning about the things that were probably lowering student uh, achievement not raising it I just found that fascinated Dylan uh, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that well I think you just summarized it nicely the fact was that when Finland topped PISA in 2006 people from all over the world went to see what they were doing differently and they were saying you know well, what, what, let's look at Finnish schools right now and what people didn't realize was that from 2006 to 2015 Finland's results have been dropping steadily Yes. So what people observed when they went to Finland in 2006 was laying the foundations for a rapid decline in the performance <laughs> of students in PISA. So first of all, we can actually say, you know, is PISA the right test? Because if you look at TIMS or PEARLS, the other international comparisons, countries often do very differently on those than they do on PISA. Um, we can look at whether the sampling has been conducted correctly. So in Finland, that's probably not much of an issue. But in certain countries like China, Getting an accurate sample of 15-year-olds is really difficult. Um, when you translate a test from one language to another, certainly in mathematics, you find that items could often get easier. So, for example, if you do a, an exam question in Welsh uh, involving similar triangles, students do better than if you do it in English. And the reason is because the word that's used for similar in maths classrooms in Welsh is only ever found in maths classrooms. <laughs> so when the students see that word, 
they know that this is a question where they're being asked about a specific mathematical property of triangles. Yes. Whereas in England, if you ask, are these two triangles similar, students are often responding as if they were asked, do these triangles resemble each other? Yes. And so even even translating a test, and, 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 and the, the really important point here, of course, is that back translation, which is the standard way of checking a translation, doesn't actually get you out of this problem. So back translation is, I translate the test from English to Chinese, and then back from Chinese to English. And if I get back to where I started from, it must be a good translation. Well, it probably is, but it still isn't equivalent, because the, each word doesn't sit in the language in the same way in two different cultures. So for, for, the, for that kind of reason, you know, I, I think we should be skeptical about the results of all international comparisons. And even if they're genuine, you know, I think Singapore's maths classrooms are pretty good. And you know, I think students know a lot of mathematics in Singapore. And how, you, how, how, do, how do you know they did it? Well, what, what, you know, even if they, even if we accept the results, which of the incredible number of variables that might affect educational outcomes are responsible for that success? So even if we could actually, even if you trust the results, would we be able to figure out why? And even if we could figure out why, could we implement it here? And Passy Salberg himself has said about Finland, if Finnish teachers who are fluent in English were moved to Indiana, they wouldn't be as effective because they wouldn't be able to use their skills given the nature of the supervision of teachers in the United States. So for all these kinds of reasons, I think that international comparisons can produce interesting hypotheses, but we should be very skeptical that we can actually copy features of a, an apparently more successful education system and implement it in another, another place. Yeah, and just, just to that latter point, because it's going to be something I'm going to reference a little bit later on. I think you describe it in the book as um, selection on the dependent variable, where if you're looking at successful organisations and you're not comparing them to less successful organisations, it's very, very difficult to pinpoint what's making them successful. And if we're just looking at high-performing regions and picking out characteristics, we can't be sure whether those characteristics are the things that are making those regions successful. Well, would that be right, Dylan? Absolutely. And my favorite example of that is from World War II. So Abraham Wald was a statistician who was working at Columbia University trying to use statistical research to improve the war effort. And one of the pieces of um, information they were working with was fighter planes returning from missions over Germany with bullet holes. So they had a very accurate information about where all these bullet holes had hit these aircraft. And so what most of the people in the research group wanted to do was to suggest that these planes should be armored in the places where there were bullet holes, because this is where planes are getting hit. Abraham Wald realizes that was exactly the wrong thing to do. He said, Armoring the places where these planes are getting hit is unnecessary because these planes are making it back. <laughs> we should be armoring the places where there are no bullet holes because the planes that are hit in those places aren't coming back. Yes. And it's just a brilliant example of the, the folly of selecting on the dependent variable. That's very it, nice. We, we, we've all got some, you know, it, it, this is what drives me crazy about asking people for the secret of their success. A, they don't know. And B, <laughs> there were probably loads of people who pursued exactly the same strategy and were unsuccessful. And this is what, you know, drives me crazy about books like From Good to Great. If you took a look at all the companies who are great, who used to be good, then you think, ah, oh, well, they pursued these strategies. Yes, 
but a number of other companies went from good to bust pursuing <laughs> the same strategies. But they're no longer around to be interviewed about what went wrong. So you have to you have to think much more carefully um, if you're going to avoid this trap of survivorship bias of only looking at the ones who are successful um, because you're focusing on the dependent variable. I like it. And uh, as I say, selection on the dependent variable will be coming back to this interview um, in a little while. Um, I want to move on now, Dylan, to, to things that do work. And we, we've we've got to dive in straight straight away with this curriculum, because mm-hmm. I think people are getting obsessed with curriculum these days. It's very much on trend. It's all over Twitter. Um, Ofsted over here in the UK are making it curriculum their kind of central focus at the moment. So before we dive into um, how we can improve things, what, what does the term curriculum mean to you, Dylan? I think it's useful to think about curriculum at at least three different levels. So one is the intended curriculum. That's what people intended to implement, like the national curriculum. Then you've got the implemented curriculum, lesson plans, textbooks, the way that the curriculum was actually implemented. And then you've got the achieved curriculum, which is the lived daily experience of young people in classrooms. And so I think we have to think about all these things to get a real handle on what we mean by curriculum. But... Put bluntly, curriculum is the set of things that we try to do to get students to be able to do stuff. So we have aims, and you can call them standards or goals or learning intentions or whatever. That's, these are the things we want students to be able to do after some time in school. The curriculum is the stuff that we organize to get the students there. And for me, the curriculum is everything the school organizes. I always thought it was very odd that we have this, these things called extracurricular activities, because <laughs> if, this, if the school organizes them, then they're curricular activities. So for me, it's all the things that schools organize to get students to do things they couldn't do before. So, would it be, just on that, Dylan, would yeah. it, like within an individual department, let's say a maths department, would it be fair to equate the curriculum with, say, a scheme of work? Would, would that yes. be a similar thing? And, cause, and the reason I'm saying that is because I think there's a danger sometimes that um, teachers, individual teachers, hear the word curriculum and think, well, that's something completely out of my control. I, I can't do anything about that. That's dictated by the government or whatever. But for me, you can kind of localize it. If you have a really good scheme of work with really well thought out order where topics build upon each other and so on, that's kind of taking control of the curriculum. Well, would that be right? Well, I think it's a part of the curriculum, but I wouldn't say it's correct to say that it, to equate those two things. No. Because the scheme of work is certainly an important aspect of the curriculum. But for me, if you want to think about the lived daily experience of young people in classrooms, then let's take maths, for example. The way that a teacher treats a wrong answer is also part of the curriculum. The way that a teacher said, okay, so we found the area of this trapezium in one way. Are there any different methods of finding the area of a trapezium? So the important point for me is what messages does the teacher send to the students about what's important in, say, mathematics? Uh, is, is there always one correct way to do things or are there a variety of ways of doing things? Those, those are all part of the curriculum. So in fact, I argue that teachers create curriculum every day on the fly. For example, you know, if you if you if somebody says, why do we have to learn Pythagoras's rule, Pythagoras's theorem? What use is that? And any teacher who just says, you know, well, I was working with my dad trying to make a garage and we actually had to lay together this concrete slab and we used a three, four, five triangle to make sure that we had square corners. Any that, that, that might not work with a particular student. 
But that teacher is trying to connect yes. the mathematics to that student's life. And if you ask me, I think that's one of the things that successful teachers do very well. I mean, it's a hunch. I don't have any evidence for that. But we know it's not content knowledge. I think good teachers have this ability to get students to care about stuff they didn't care about when they walked into the classroom. By the way yes. they present it, by the engaging stories they tell, by the connections they make to people's personal lives. And that's all curriculum, as far as I'm concerned, because it's about the lived daily experience of young people in classrooms. But can we can we separate curriculum from approaches to teaching? Because I think this is something that often gets muddled up. Can we have a curriculum, but it can be delivered by a teacher who prefers more explicit instruction? And also that same curriculum can be delivered by somebody who prefers a more inquiry based or a problem solving based approach to it. Is Can, can we separate them in, in that sense? Is curriculum independent to how you approach the delivery of it? I would say no. Um, I would say that, that they, they merge into each other. But. I think that there are aspects of curriculum that is relatively independent of pedagogy, but ultimately it just becomes pedagogy. And you can actually make a very strong argument that curriculum is part of pedagogy, especially if you think of pedagogy in the widest sense that people like Robin Alexander defines it as basically the whole discourse of teaching. Well, OK, so if, if we take... If, if we take curriculum there, and the next kind of point point you make, and this this builds directly into it, is is when you look at kind of separate skills, and you have the classics: collaboration, communication, creativity, critical thinking, problem solving, and so on. And you argue that these are not skills, but actually collections of many skills. And you make the point that between subjects, for example, thinking critically in maths does not transfer to thinking critically in science or French or whatever. So I have two questions really for you, Dylan. The first is, why is that not the case? But And secondly, do those skills transfer within a subject? Is it the case that if I'm teaching for students to think critically about a problem involving fractions that that's then going to transfer across to help them think critically about a problem involving circle theorems or angles or probability and so on i think the answer is we don't know i think that um well for, but, but let's 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 take a few steps back first of all i'm now becoming increasingly unhappy with the word skill because i don't know what it means <laughs> so I, I looked at the etymology of the word, and it's an old Norse word that came into English um, about a thousand years ago, and it just meant knowledge. So skill originally meant knowledge. Um, I think we use it slightly differently these days. I think that somebody is skillful if they're good at something and they've had to get good at it by practice. So somebody who is just naturally intelligent, has a very high IQ, we would probably not say is skillful. We would probably not say that a weightlifter who gets stronger by lifting weights is skillful. We could, their technique might be skillful, but I think their strength wouldn't be. So it seems to me that um, a skill is something that you acquire as a result of practice. And I think the connotation is that it's in some sense transferable. I don't think we call things skills unless you can apply them in a wide range of context. So for example, for me, a classic example of a skill is decoding. Um, text, orthographic decoding. Because once you've learned how to decode text, any written document you can then read out loud. You may not understand it, but you can certainly read it. So that's, right. a, that's, a, that's a good example of a skill. Um, if we use that definition of skill, then it is certainly the case that, as I argue in the book, 
Critical thinking in maths looks very similar to critical thinking in history. And if you ask mathematicians and historians to describe critical thinking, they will actually give you very similar stories. So it's very tempting to see this as one skill called critical thinking. But it turns out not to be the same because, as you mentioned, we know that no amount of training people to think critically in history has any impact on their ability to think critically in mathematics. And that's because of knowledge. Is that right, Dylan? It's, it's, it's because, yes, it, you need the knowledge. So, for example, you know, in, in mathematics, you know, there's a famous fallacious proof that one equals two and it works by dividing by zero. And basically, the good mathematician learns that you, once you divide both sides of an equation through by zero, what follows is nonsense. And therefore, if you have a common factor of x minus y on two sides of an equation, you actually say, OK, dividing throughout by x minus y. And from now on, provided x is not equal to y, the following holds. Yes. But the point is, you learn that in maths lessons and you learn that in doing algebraic equations. So I, my hunch, and I don't know this, but my hunch is that there's relatively little transfer even within mathematics, apart from a few salient things like um, most of the time is not good enough in mathematics. So there's, there's some things that, that you actually understand that unless this is true for all possible cases, you can't actually say generally in mathematics. So there are some kinds of things like the, the nature of mathematical argument, which may, once you get it, you can apply everywhere. But um, following a proof, for example, realizing that something might have been missed seems to me to be very, very subject specific. Okay, and even topic specific. Topic specific. And just on that, Dylan, and this this will be a very little interest to the non-maths uh, teaching uh, listeners here, so they, they can just do something else for a second. But one thing that continually comes up when I interview people is, is the nature of problem solving within mathematics. And right. is that something that's teachable as a separate skill, or is that something that's domain specific and de uh, dependent on knowledge? And I'm very much of the latter camp. The more I read, the more I work with kids, I'm convinced that a student's ability to um, solve a problem within something like fractions is relatively independent of their ability to solve a problem within another area of mathematics however where does that put like george pollier's um problem solving steps solve a simpler problem draw a diagram all this kind of thing which have been around for years and years and teachers swear by and have posters up in their room that if you're faced with an unfamiliar problem have a think about this next try this next try this and so on personally i'm not convinced that works anymore but i'm just interested in in your take on it dylan as a, as a mathematician well, first of all, I should say that uh, I owe a huge debt to George Pollier's or Pollier Georg, as we should call him, um, and his book, Mathematical Discovery. I, uh, I think in my second year of teaching, I took that book with me to France on a vacation and I worked through every single problem in that book. It was just <laughs> it was just an incredible experience of just practicing problem solving. And I became better and better at problem solving. But the, but the reason I think I became better at problem solving was not because I was training my skill as a problem solver. It was I was learning about a huge number of problems. So whenever I saw another problem, I say, oh, that's like this. So I think the work of David Geary is very helpful here. He distinguishes between pri biologically primary and biologically secondary kinds of knowledge. So it seems that all human beings are, are born with the ability to recognize faces or to learn them very quickly. It seems like all human beings or most human beings are born with the ability to learn language just by being exposed to it and hearing it around them. And he calls these things biologically primary. And he says that they can't be taught. 
So he calls general problem solving an example of this. So the idea, you know, you're stuck. How do you get the how do you reach the fruit of the tree? Back in the African savanna in the environment of evolutionary adaptedness, that's a general problem solving skill. And apparently you can't teach that. Mm. Uh, other things are biologically secondary, uh, like reading, for example. It's not a natural act. It's a very unnatural act. And therefore, you need to be taught it and practice it. And therefore, it's very subject specific. So um, now, d- despite the fact that I loved the, the polyheuristics when I first came across them, I now think they are more of the character of things that people who can solve problems can recognize in what they do. Yes. Rather than being useful instructions to people who do not yet know how to solve problems. But, I mean, I would say the try simpler cases thing is probably a good idea. You know, I mean, it's, that seems to be at a very general level. That may be one of the few kinds of biologically secondary but useful heuristics in problem solving. So can you, can you um, try a simpler case? Um, you know, other things like what would the world be like if this were true? You know, does ultraviolet light travel through glass? Well, if it did, we'd have people sunning themselves in glass. And the fact that people don't tend to do that means that probably ultraviolet light doesn't travel through glass. And therefore, to be tanned, you need to be out in the real direct sunlight rather than <laughs> through glass. So you, you can use those kinds of thinking skills, those, those thinking tools, if you like. What if not? Um, but I think they're probably quite limited. And... And, and crucially, they rely on a certain kind of base level of knowledge of the, the, the subject matter involved for them to be any use at all, right? It could, could be. I mean, I think we're learning from the work of John Sweller uh, with his, what he calls the expertise reversal effect. The fact that solving problems is good for learning for people who can already solve problems, but not good for novices, will actually be very strong support for the, what you've just said there. The fact is that you need to be you need to learn some content to get to the point where you can become a problem solver. Yes. Well, the next thing I just want to talk about before we move away briefly from from curriculum is um, I, I tweeted a, a section of your your book out, a paragraph of your book that, that that really kind of made me stop and think. And then it was all kicking off on Twitter, Dylan. People mm-hmm. were retweeting it, liking it. People were agreeing with it. People were disagreeing with it. And I, I just wondered if I could get your response. So it's, it's a relatively short quote. So I'll just read it out for listeners. And uh, you say the big mistake we have made in the United States and indeed in many other countries is to assume that if we want students to be able to to think, then our curriculum should give our students lots of practice in thinking. This is a mistake because what our students need is more to think with. And then when I posted that, uh, one response on Twitter from Andrew Blair, who's a a former guest on this podcast, uh, replied, how can you build long term memory without thinking? How can you learn content with which to think without thinking about it? This takes the separation of knowledge and thinking to a ludicrous level. What's your response, Dylan, to, to that? Well, first of all, um, I'm trying to highlight the role of long-term memory in learning. So I think many people who use the term skill, and in particular as an educational aim, it's as if somehow what we're trying to do to make students more skillful is to make their short-term memories somehow sharper or more capacious or of longer duration. 
And the point I'm trying to make is that really you can't change your short-term memory. So, so, you know, you might be able to hold four things in memory or five or six or seven, but the evidence is you can't really change that very much. What you can do is to have superior contents of long-term memory that makes your use of short-term memory more powerful. So let me give you an example. Where I live in Florida, I'm halfway between two area codes, 904 for Jacksonville and 352 for Gainesville. Now, if I have a 10-digit phone number to, to memorize, for me, it's simpler than it would be for you because you don't know the codes for Jacksonville and Gainesville. They happen to be 904 and 352. So when I see a 10-digit phone number, I only have eight things to remember. The seven digits of the phone number plus whether it's Jacksonville or Gainesville. Yes. You have 10 things to remember because you don't recognize those first three numbers. Yes. And so the fact is that the same task is easier for me to hold in short-term memory because of my different contents of long-term memory. And the point that's what the point I was trying to get over. Now, how did I, you know, I, I, I don't think I sat, I sat down to learn 904 and 352. I don't think I, I know that Daniel Willingham says that memory is the residue of thought, but sometimes memory is the residue of exposure. So I don't yes. think I sat down and think, right, I must remember that 904 is Jacksonville and 352 is Gainesville. No, I just came across it so many times, I now know it. And the fact that I know it makes my ability to remember local phone numbers better than yours just because of the differences in our long-term memory. And that's the point I was trying to make. In mathematics, we think the best way to get students better at problem solving is to have them solve problems. That doesn't turn out to be true. In English comprehension, we all want students to be able to get the main idea of a paragraph. But practicing getting the main idea of a paragraph is not a successful recipe for comprehension because that's not the way our brains work. What we need is to understand what the paragraph is talking about. My favorite example for an English audience is, he got a walk to first, stole second, got butted over to third, and scored on a sacrifice fly. Now, there's one word in there that most English people would probably not understand, and that's the word bunt. But even if I explained it to you, it would do you no good at all. Because <laughs> yeah. you, it, it's not that you don't understand the words, it's that you haven't got enough experience of baseball to be able to form a, a, a picture, situa a situation model that actually allows you to actually receive this information and slot it into a, a script or a schema or whatever else you want to call it. And so, you know, we know that children who know more about football do better on comprehension passages about football. It's, knowledge about football is far more important than reading ability in being able to read passages about football. And so we've, we, we've, we've, we try to th practice this skill element when in fact, as E.D. Hirsch says, skill is content and content is skill. Now, I'm not sure how much of a recipe that gives us for teaching. I'm not sure that takes us very far. But I now argue that the major purpose of curriculum is to build the contents of long-term memory. And if you're not building the contents of long-term memory, you actually aren't helping students. And that's the, 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 that's, that's the real challenge, I think. I think it I think it does give us a, a recipe. So certainly from my perspective anyway of, of how to think about teaching and how to think about ordering um, lessons and sequences of lessons and, and I'm I'm massively influenced over the last eighteen months or so by, by Sweller's work as well. And and my kind of main takeaway related to this, Dylan, is that there's no point me 
giving students unstructured problems or, or problems that require multi steps and for them to plot a path to the solution. Unlo unless their knowledge of the, the the content is relatively secure so if if there's um, a, a problem that involves the addition of fractions and that also involves maybe a bit of algebraic simplification and so on unless students are secure in their ability to add fractions and simplify algebra if I expose them to a problem that requires them to do both things, but also in an unconventional way and decide which to do first and then which to do next and plot this path to the solution, I don't think they're going to learn the skills or however we want to term it of adding mm. fractions and algebraic simplification. And then also not going to learn how to solve a similar problem like that in the future. So they end up with the worst of both worlds. Whereas now I, I hold back those problems and I hold back the kind of inquiry or discovery or the old coursework tasks until all the knowledge of the individual components is relatively secure. And for me, that's kind of my big takeaway um, for, from Sweller's work and, and this kind of the the emphasis on long-term memory and the, and the limits on working memory do, do, does that make sense it does and in fact um it makes connections to things we were doing in the 1980s um, people like hugh burkhart uh, the university of nottingham were talking about mathematical modeling you know and um i did a lot of work on mathematical modeling in those days and i was constantly surprised by how little mathematics, even good mathematics students could use in mathematical modeling. And Hugh Burkhart suggested to me, and, I th and that was certainly confirmed my experience, students could, could not use in any mathematical modeling anything they'd learned within the last two years. That the only mathematics they could use in solving a problem that really mattered to them would be at least two years old. And so, And now, of course, in terms of cognitive load theory, I can think about that in saying, what that means is that this mathematics is so familiar to them that they don't have to use thinking skills to solve this problem. They're just using knowledge. Yes. And, and so that all their short term working memory is freed to think about the mathematical modeling you know, in the same way that if, if you have to think about the shaping of letters, handwriting is really difficult. But once you've got that ability to write fluently, then your brain is free to think about what you want to write. So it's about making as many processes automatic as possible. Um, and, it, and, and just on that, then it goes back to your yeah, point on. about when you're on holiday in France, taking Polly's book away and you're going through those problems. The reason I believe that you were then able to build up a bank of these problems in your long term memory and recognize similarities is because your knowledge of the skills involved in each problem was was pro probably relatively secure. So you could focus on the kind of problem solving elements and making connections. Whereas if you were having to really rack your brain to think about how to do the individual steps, the chances are you, you wouldn't have been able to build up that bank because you wouldn't see the connections from the start point to the end point of the problem and relate it to similar problems that you'd solved in the past, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it sounds about right. Yeah. OK. All right. Well, we'll move on from, from that one. But I, I can't promise that we won't uh, return to, to knowledge very soon. But I want to talk about textbooks next, Dylan, because mm -hmm. you, you identify textbooks as a, as a relatively affordable way to, uh, to improve the curriculum. And certainly I, this is my 14th year of teaching. And I've really seen a, a, a decrease in the use of textbooks over the last probably five years, six years. And I think a lot of that is a funding um, issue. Maths departments over here um, don't tend to have too 
too much money and textbooks are, are relatively expensive. But also, um, I think there's been a bit of a move away from textbooks. It's seen as a bit of a, a negative if you're teaching from a textbook. Turn to page 206 and get on with exercise 5Cs. I think seen as, as a rather poor way to teach. But you, you highlight the benefits of textbooks. But my, my question to you again is in, in two parts, really. Uh, why are textbooks effective or why do you believe they're effective? But crucially, how do we know that textbooks that are used in these higher performing regions, which they, where they seem to be relatively prevalent there, how do we know that we're again not falling into this dependency variable trap that just because textbooks are used in higher performing regions, we immediately think, ah, well, that means textbooks are going to work for us in the UK or the US and so on. Right. Well, first of all, you're right. We don't know. Um, but we do know that changing the textbooks can improve student learning. So Roberto Agadino at um, Mathematica, I don't think he's there anymore, but he did some randomized controlled trials of just swapping around textbooks. And some students learned 25% more in a year just because they had a different textbook. So, so there's no doubt that changing the textbook can improve the student learning. Uh, whether this is a reason for the success of countries like Singapore or Japan is obviously impossible to establish because there's so many other variables uh, in play. But... And let me say, first of all, I, I do think that in the hands of, you know, of the best teachers, then maybe textbooks are unnecessary. So there are some teachers who know their subject so well, can sequence it so effectively, that maybe textbooks wouldn't make them any better. But I think the evidence is that textbooks do make average and weaker teachers more effective. And they actually do that by thinking about how to structure and how to sequence things. So it may not be any better than a good scheme of work. But the point is that most schemes of work are not that carefully designed. So let me give you an example. So typically in uh, secondary schools in England, we do the areas of polygons and we teach kids the square, first of all, and then the rectangle and then the triangle and then the parallelogram and then the trapezium. Yeah, that's that is the, that is the common sequence. And that's true in the US as well. Now, in Japan, they don't do that. They don't start with the square. They start with the rectangle because the square is just a special rectangle so why bother with a square why why make it a separate topic when it's just a special kind of rectangle but the important thing is after the the rectangle they do the parallelogram why because you've got to always put two triangles together to make a parallelogram you can't put two triangles together to make a rectangle unless they happen to be right angle triangles yes so they've thought very carefully about the the, the sequence and so there's there, there are fewer things to teach because they've thought about the best sequence in which to introduce these these different ideas. And, of course, they don't have randomized controlled trials that proves this is better. But what happens when you have textbooks, especially when you have national textbooks, is over time a, a great deal of experience about really powerful activities, ideas, ways of explaining things uh, are generated that get codified in textbooks. And so what textbooks often represent is a, is a massive amount of wisdom about the best ways to teach particular topics. And so, uh, you know, I'm very happy to admit there's some terrible textbooks out there. And so I'm not saying that textbooks are a panacea, but bad textbooks are about the same price as good textbooks. <laughs> Therefore, 
we need to actually focus on getting textbooks to be as good as possible. Now, here's the other point. Uh, schools say they can't afford textbooks. Well, I mean, they, they do have the money they're spending on something else. Textbooks aren't a big cost compared to photocopying uh, worksheets and things like that. So I'm not sure that the, 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 those kinds of um, objections to textbooks hold much water. Um, I, I'm now more and more convinced. And, I, and you know, I, I was very much against textbooks when I was a maths teacher. Um, but now I'm becoming more and more convinced that a, a really good te textbook that lays out the sequence has the best ways of teaching these things. Um, you know, teachers can always I I improvise around a textbook. But I think that um, having students, having, a, a, you know, these resources they can go home and, and study and helps them locate the sequence of development of a particular topic, I think those kinds of things are, are very helpful. I, I think I agree, and 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 related to that, we're two get two guests that we've we've had on this podcast. Greg Ashman, who I know we're, we're both kind of you introduced me to his, his wonderful blog, uh, and also Danny Quinn, both both of whom are head of maths. Um, Greg obviously in Australia, and Danny Quinn at Michaela in London. When I asked them about planning lessons and running departments. They both said to me that they, they essentially centrally plan their lessons for their department. So the head of maths with another TLR holder or another experienced teacher will sit down and in some cases almost script out a lesson, but certainly choose the examples that kids are given and the sequences of practice questions kids are given. And then if possible, if necessary, the rich activity or whatever that, that follows that. And whenever I first heard this, Dylan, again, I just thought, no, come on, you've got to give teachers and um, chance and options to um plan their own lessons learn from their mistakes and so on but then i thought back to when i first started teaching and i was flipping useless at planning lessons i didn't have a clue what i was doing i was just going on tears and downloading powerpoints and activities that look good i was trying to fit activities to lessons as opposed to thinking about the, the learning sequence and so on so the more i think about it the more i'm inclined to lean towards centrally planned lessons within departments and then if i scale that up one more Where's the argument against, as you say, national textbooks, prescribed schemes of work, almost prescribed scripted lessons, perhaps not going as extreme as the Engelman work, but something along those lines where here are questions that you should ask as a teacher. Here is an example you should give. Here are practice questions you should give. If we if we see things that work well and we know that good textbooks and good sequences of lessons can improve weaker teachers and even good teachers, Where's the argument against it, Dylan, of, of kind of prescribing um, the way lessons should be delivered? Well, I'm not sure I'd use the word prescribe. Uh, I'm not sure quite how far down that road I want to go. Um, it, it'd be very easy at this point to make a medical metaphor that, um, you know, I go to my doctor and uh, I've got a bacterial infection in my sinuses and the doctor says well i know that people say we should actually give you an antibiotic but i'm i'm not convinced that antibiotics are the most effective treatment you know and uh, i'd be very worried about any doctor who said that um but i do think that teaching is different in important ways i, I think the contexts are different so I, i'm i'm very very nervous about prescription basically because no educational scheme can ever be implemented in a classroom in the way envisaged by its inventor. Teachers always have to do workarounds. Students ask weird questions. You always have to have some kind of understanding of the, of the bigger picture. Uh, Lawrence Stenhouse famously remarked 
that teachers are often treated like intellectual navvies who are told where to dig in the road but not why. <laughs> and, and, you know, the point is you can't always do exactly what the, in, the, the curriculum designer intended. And if you don't understand why these, those pieces are where they are, then you will make adjustments that effectively make the, the, the curriculum scheme less effective. So, uh, but on the other hand, the, the other extreme, I think there is definitely advantage in having really good diagnostic questions, and this is a conversation we've had before. I think most teachers don't know enough about the misconceptions that children have in science and mathematics and history to be able to make up good multiple choice questions, and therefore giving them those questions would actually make them better teachers. They would actually find out things that they thought the students understand that they actually don't understand. And then, you know, the, the idea of offering um, recommended sequences, we think you should teach the, the, these topics in the following sequence. It makes more sense this way than the other way. I think those kinds of things um, make a lot of sense. But I'm also aware that we also need to think carefully about innovation. So, yes. for example, uh, when I taught A-level, most, most years I taught A-level, I taught differentiation before integration because basically differentiation is computationally easier than integration. Yes. But I, but I then, in my master's dissertation, looked at the historical development of the calculus. I discovered that integration was discovered way before differentiation because conceptually the area under a curve is a much easier idea to get hold of than the slope of a curve at a point. And so one year I decided to teach things the other way around, a conceptually based approach. So I started integration first and then differentiation. So what I'm saying is that sometimes you need to experiment. And I, I think it didn't work as well, actually. So I went back to teaching it the other way. But I, I, for me, that, that idea of experimenting, of trying yes. different ways of teaching things, of not accepting that there's necessarily a set sequence for these things to be presented in, um, is, is a very important part of innovation. But I think that the other thing is, if you've got five year seven classes in a school, it makes no sense at all for, seven, for five different for five different teachers to be preparing five different lessons on the area of polygons. I think that two teachers should do that working together and another, another two teachers should come up with a different lesson on something else. So I think the idea of, you know, getting economies of scale by actually not having every teacher reinvented the wheel, uh, makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Well, the the next area I just want to want to touch upon is a real hot topic at the moment, Dylan. So we're we're recording this in kind of May 2018, and it's it's surrounding facts and specifically facts in maths. But feel free to broaden this out as you see fit. Um, and recently, Joe Bowler um, tweeted out um, quite a controversial tweet about um, the fact that in the UK, students were being forced to uh, memorise under time conditions their multiplication tables. And again, it was all kicking off on, on Twitter. But you make a really interesting point, I think, that, that, that you say that people assume, and I think this is true, that if students don't know their multiplication facts, then as long as they can work it out quickly using a related fact, then that's fine. So, for example, if a student doesn't know what seven eighths are, but could, but knows what five eighths are and knows what two eighths are and can combine those, and that's just as good. But but you don't agree with that, so I wonder if you could explain why, Dylan. First, well, the the reason I don't agree is because if a student is having to actually add fourteen and twenty eight in their heads to get an answer of, of forty two, for example, then they've used a valuable short term working memory 
which could have been available to something else, like solving the problem at hand, and they've used that to actually derive a fact. And the student who doesn't need to do that, the student who knows that, you know, six sevens are 42, and as soon as they see six sevens, the number 42 jumps, jumps into their head, as soon as they see that, then they are already solving the problem. So for me, this is a logical consequence of the work on cognitive load. We know that if you have to use some of your short-term working memory for for processes that other people don't need to use them for, you won't be as good at problem solving. Now, that said, I mean, I do want students to have that familiarity. You know, I would like my students to be friends with every single number up to at least 100. <laughs> you know, just to have a feeling for those numbers. Does it feel prime? Does it feel like a multiple of three? Um, I was in a store the other day and a friend of mine bought three items and... The total came to 95. This was in England, so it wasn't, there wasn't any sales tax on top. And my friend said, that's wrong. And the, the, the assistant said, well, what's the correct answer? And my friend said, I don't know, I don't know but that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so what was interesting was the person on the till had no idea how anybody could know that the total was wrong unless they knew what the correct answer was. But what my friend had reasoned was, if these three items all cost something 90 and 99 pence, then the, the sum of those three numbers cannot possibly end in a five. So, you know, I, I, I want that kind of facility with numbers. I want that kind of feeling for numbers. But if you are having to derive facts on the fly, you will always be a weaker problem solver compared to somebody who has those things jumping into their heads as soon as they see the the, 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 the two numbers that need to be multiplied together. That's, that's the point I'm making. So, I mean, I, I don't know what Joe Bolo is actually saying here. She's saying it's not useful to know her, to know these number bonds, in which case she's definitely incorrect. No, um, I don't. I, I, again, I think she gets misrepresented. I don't think yeah. she's saying it's not useful. I think she's saying, firstly, she doesn't like the timed aspect of it. She doesn't think that for building up anxiety, but okay. also, so and I agree with that. But what well, I, don't I, I don't, I don't, also, I don't. So the timed aspect as a diagnostic tool is the only way you can be sure that they know it as a fact, as opposed to a derived fact. Yes. Yes. So, so for diagnostic purposes, the, the, the speed is important. For a summative assessment purposes, I can, I can see that it's objectionable. But, but if you want to be sure that a student is actually knowing this fact rather than deriving it, there has to be a timed element. Otherwise, you don't know how they did it. They might you, know you're, it. Right, you're right on that, Don. Again, it reminds me. So last year I had a, a bottom set. We set in our school. I had a bottom set year seven. And I was acutely aware of the importance of, of these number facts. So I would set my students every week a times table to learn. because so they'd arrived and for whatever reason they, they didn't know the times table fluently. And we get to the we get to the seven times table. And I'd ask a child, what is six times seven? And there'd be a pause. And I could see them looking down and I could see them counting on their fingers and they'd get the answer of 42. 
But again, that's not good enough, is it? Because that, that shows if they can't answer it quickly, it's not been automated. So as soon as I then require them to do something with six sevens as part of a contextual problem or as part of equivalent fractions or whatever it should be, that's when working memory is going to reach its capacity because this hasn't been automated. So I agree with you that the time thing has to come into play. And I don't want to put words into Joe's mouth here, but I think... I think Joe's point is that if students are exposed to this purely under kind of time conditions and it's a stressful environment and the clock's ticking and so on, that that then can lead to anxiety and, and a negative uh, conception of mathematics, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, but I think so for me, there is no doubt that knowing these number facts is helpful. The question is, if students don't know these number facts by the age of 11, do we need to change the way we teach? And I think that's possibly Correct. I don't know. But I'm open to the idea that if you haven't learned these facts by the age of 11, then you may need to learn them in a different way because yes. you're older. So, so for me and, you know, we know that stress is unhelpful beyond a certain point, but it's also helpful up to a certain point. So I don't think anybody would disagree with with Joe's point about you know, we don't want students being panicky and having maths and anxiety. But. You know, we also know the solution to this. As recent research has shown, competence is the best uh, um, remedy to math anxiety. So for me, the, the curriculum goal is clear. It's, much, it's clearly much better if students know their facts. The question is, how do we get them to learn their facts? And I suspect that might be different for students of different ages. And it may be different for different students. I just don't know. So I, I, think, we, I, I think that there's also the issue of opportunity cost. So it may be that for a particular student at a particular time and a particular kind of set of emotional circumstances, I'm not going to push times tables with that child because it's just going to be a brick wall that's going to make them very negative of mathematics. And I might leave it for a year. So I think that as soon as you actually think about the real classroom with real students, you know, you have to take into account the opportunity cost. Shall I keep on banging this, this point over and over again? Or should I take, take a break and do something else? So then I think that it becomes much more about the relationship the teacher has with the student, what the teacher knows about the individual student's um, strengths and weaknesses. And it becomes really um, not something that we can make pronouncements about in the abstract. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, just a, a few more areas, Dylan, and I want to get into. And the, the first one's a little bit on the controversial side, and certainly in terms of this, this, this podcast anyway, and that's about teacher-led instruction. And you make a statement in the book, and again, it's, it's only short, so I'll just read it. Uh, you say, the more teacher-led instruction there was in a classroom, the higher students scored on PISA. And at the other end of the scale, students in classrooms where there was a lot of inquiry-based instruction, where students explored their own scientific ideas, did worse. Now, this is obviously in, in reference to, to science lessons. Um, I guess from a math teacher's perspective, my, my question is, are there equivalent findings in maths? But, but more importantly, for any teacher listening, um, how on earth do we try to strike the right balance, Dylan, between when to do these kind of inquiry-based activities and when to do teacher-led instruction? Well, first, I think we should say, with the PISA finding, we don't know the direction of causality. So it could be that a high amount of student-led activity is causing low achievement. Or it could be that low achievement is causing student-led activity. So if you've got countries that group kids by ability in science and you've got 
teachers teaching students who've been, who've been told they're not very good at science and say they don't like science, the teacher might then choose to do lots more practical work to try to get the students to understand ah, yes. the value of science. So, so we can't assume that that association um, is necessarily caused by the the, the teacher group group uh, teacher instructional practices. It could be a, a consequence rather than a cause. Um, for me, I think it, it comes back to this idea of learning as a change in long-term memory. And I think there's a kind of Goldilocks point here, because as the work of Robert Bjork has pointed out, if students aren't struggling a little bit, they don't remember uh, uh, as much. But if they struggle too much, then as John Sweller's work on cognitive load shows, they learn less as well. So that's why I think that teaching is always going to be a craft rather than a science. It's about teachers judging I, you know, how teachers do this, I don't know, but I think the best teachers do it better than, than, than the others. <laughs> is this too hard for these students? How I minimize the cognitive load? Is this an appropriate activity? Have I prepared them adequately for this? But I think the other point comes from John Sweller's work on the expertise reversal effect. It may be simple, as simple as making sure that students have the required conceptual knowledge to make sense of what they're seeing. So I think that one of the things we've lost in science teaching, particularly, is the idea of the demonstration, where a teacher does something at the front and the students look and the teacher tells them what they're seeing. Because left to their own devices, many students don't understand what it is they're seeing and therefore they don't learn what's, what's intended. So I think that um, we don't know if it's the same is true in mathematics, but I think the work that John Sweller has done, which is mostly in mathematics, does seem to suggest that for novices, worked examples are more helpful, and for experts, uh, more open-ended problems are more helpful. And I think that's probably quite a good guide to um, effective teaching. Is start. Gone. Sorry, Dylan. I was, and I was going to say to, to, I guess the difficulty is judging when that's the case, when students have transitioned from novice to expert, if we want to use those labels. And I guess, um, and we'll come on to this for the final part of the interview in a few minutes, I guess f to kind of help teachers judge that, that's where formative assessment will come into play. Would that be right? That's right. Um, but obviously it's, it can't be, I, I don't think it can ever be formalised. And I think that's... Yes. It's, it's going to be very much a kind of hunch thing. But I think that you know, one of the really interesting things that John Swallow's cognitive load theory forces maths teachers to think about is, have you made the task more difficult for no good reason? <laughs> yes. So the idea of diagrams where the text is on one side of the page and the diagrams on the other side of the page, so you have this split attention effect. Well, there you just made it difficult for just no good reason. And so therefore yes. just getting teachers to think about, is this a desirable difficulty or an undesirable difficulty to use Robert Bjork's phrase? And I think just understanding the power of desirable difficulties and understanding the, uh, the idea that we need to try and minimize the undesirable difficulties gives teachers, I think, a quite a useful framework for thinking about how they're designing their instructional activities. I think you're right. And, and again, whenever I read Sweller's work, it was the redundancy effect that was the big one for me. When I, when I look at my slides I used to use, when I look at my classroom walls, when I, when I look at the words I used to say, just full of redundant information that, that kids have to effortly filter out. And it's, again, like you say, it's extraneous load. It does it makes thinking harder, but not in a way that contributes to learning. And yeah, that, that for me has kind of been the big practical takeaway from, from Sweller's work. And um, just, just before we move on to, to memory, Dylan, well, when you 
look back at your teaching um, and you consider Sweller's work, did you have instances of redundancy and split attention there? Does it make you cringe a little bit when you think back to some of your lessons? I think a lot of them, a lot of things I did do make me cringe. I'm still not sure about the attention. You know, so the, the purists will now say that there shouldn't be any kind of wall decoration in the maths classroom. You want to be focusing. <laughs> yes. But I think the thing to think of, I think the most powerful thing that I've learned in thinking about any research is there are usually trade-offs. So if you think that the answer is simple and people aren't doing what you think they should be doing, then you probably haven't understood that there are probably trade-offs that are going on here that you don't really understand. So for me, having students' work displayed was powerful in terms of valuing students' work, especially when it was work that was being produced by students who weren't seeing themselves as particularly good at mathematics, for example. So I think for me, the really important thing is, what's the trade-off here? So yes, we might have a cleaner less cluttered classroom, but then we aren't evaluating the students' work. And I'm not saying I, would, I wouldn't make a different choice now, but for me, there's always the trade-off. Yeah, okay, so what's the, what are we trading off here? What are the costs, what are the benefits, and what are the compromises we're making? And I think that is a more powerful framework than just thinking about these pure things like, let's have a stark austere classroom to focus students' attention. That's interesting. That there'll be, there'll be listeners to this podcast laughing because I've I've been banging on for a while about taking down displays in in classrooms. So that that will give it an alternate perspective there, Dylan. I like that. And um, last last couple of things I want to talk about is is memory um, first. And we've touched upon um, the Bjork's work, and I've been very fortunate to have Robert and Elizabeth as as guests on this podcast, and it was a, a fascinating interview. Um, you, you mention a, a phrase that's one of my favourites, and that's forgetting is an important part of remembering. And when I first read that, I was like, what the flipping heck is going on there? It's incredibly counterintuitive and um, i guess my question for you dylan is is if that's true what, what are the practical applications there for classroom teachers if forgetting really is an important part of remembering well i think the phrase forgetting is an important part of remembering operates at a number of different levels so for example um forgetting some stuff can be important for remembering others so in my work i travel quite a lot and the really good thing is, you know, I, I often sleep in a different hotel room every night. And what's really good is I can usually forget the room of the hotel I stayed in yesterday, which makes it easy to remember the hotel room I'm staying in tonight. So yes. there's, there's, there's that kind of forgetting, which is highly adaptive. But I think for teachers, the most important point is that, and you can tell stories about this from evolution. You can, you know, I'm sure evolutionary psychologists have a, wonderfully um, engaging just so story about why we are like we are but let's forget that let's just accept that Robert Bjork's work shows very clearly that when you retrieve something from memory the harder it is to retrieve the bigger the impact on storage strength or long-term memory so I think we need to understand that as students forget stuff that gives us an opportunity to restudy it or to help them retrieve it at a time when retrieval strength or the ease of retrieval is low, and that will help them more than if retrieval strength is high. That's why most students' review or revision strategies are so ineffective. Students read stuff they've just read, and they think they know it because it seems very familiar. But that's only because retrieval strength is high. 
So the time to review things or revise things is not when they're familiar, it's when they're unfamiliar. And so I think the, the, the fact that you forget stuff when you haven't used it seems to give us a, a guide to how to study more effectively, which is don't restudy something or don't try to retrieve it until it's hard to retrieve or it's unfamiliar to you because then the, your time will be spent more effectively because you will have a bigger impact on your long-term memory. Yeah, it's, it's tricky though, isn't it, Dylan? Because again, I put this to, to, to Robert Bjork when he was on the show. You, you don't, you don't want to leave it too long though, right? Like if it's impossible to retrieve that, then you're in a bit of trouble. Whereas I think if I was to, obviously there's been a research into optimal spacing um, schedules and so on, but it's incredibly difficult to do lots of variables yeah. um, as we've discussed. And that's the dream. Like I'd love to know when I teach something today, when's the best time to, to get kids to practice retrieval via a homework, a starter, a quiz or whatever it should be. But would that be advice that, that you'd kind of go along with that if in doubt, it's better to try and uh, get kids to practice retrieval too soon than rather leave it too long when they've potentially uh, unable to retrieve it? Well, you have to look at the trade-offs because as Robert Bjork's work has shown, re successful retrieval is better than restudy, but restudy is still good. Right. So even if, even if they can't retrieve it, then just telling them a second time or the, then rereading it, it, it still has a bigger impact than when it's familiar. But then I think what you ought to look at is the use of hints. So uh, there hasn't been much research here, but my hunch is that if students can't retrieve something, then a hint that cues successful retrieval might be almost as effective as being able to retrieve it themselves without a hint. So I think there's lots of things to play with there. The other thing that, in terms of um, optimum spacing, um, I think in many subjects, mathematics and science in particular, it may be that different things are forgotten at different rates. Yes. So it may be that conceptual material is forgotten more quickly or more slowly than content material, for example. I mean, uh, the facts and definitions, you know, units in, in you know, um, joules and kilograms in science. So uh, I, I don't think we're ever going to get to the point where somebody will say, you know, you teach this and then you leave it for exactly 23 days and then you teach it again. Um, I don't think that ever happened. But it was the whole idea that restudy or retrieval is more effective the more difficult it is. That, I think, gives teachers quite a lot to play with in terms of their classroom practice. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think... I don't know if you'd agree with this. It's something that needs co to uh, communicate into students themselves because it feels horrible, right? It feels hard. And I found what's been really helpful for my year 11s this year is to tell them exactly why this is why we're doing this, to tell them about Robert Bjork's work into this and say, if it feels hard, it's probably really helping you. It's probably leading to increasing storage strength or how, however we want to describe it. But I think this needs co to it needs communicating to students, these desirable difficulties. They, they are desirable. And if they're hard, it's a good thing. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I also you know, go back to the work he did in, in 1992, where he pointed out that students and teachers consistently express a preference for approaches to teaching that make things easy for students, when in fact we need to make making it harder. And in fact, 
This probably, in my view, explains why delayed feedback is often more effective than immediate feedback. Students much prefer, certainly in higher education, students much prefer immediate feedback. But delayed feedback is often more effective. And my guess is the reason for this is because delayed feedback functions as a kind of restudy. So I think a, a, a lot of these pieces are beginning to fit together. And students need to understand this. The reason I'm not giving you feedback straight away is because it will have a bigger impact on your long-term learning to delay the feedback somewhat. Again, that is fascinating, that Dylan, isn't it? Because for me, that's that's counterintuitive as well. And even even when I've read all the desirable difficulty stuff, I still come to one and I think, surely not. Because to take feedback, for example, I, I know, again, just from experience, that if I set students a homework on Monday, they hand it in on Friday, I mark it over the weekend, and maybe I give it them back on Monday or Tuesday, or if, I'm, if for whatever reason it, it's later on, the later I give it them back, it almost feels like the less they get from it because it it's not familiar. They can't remember the mistakes they made. They can't remember how they got a particular answer. And it's almost as if they don't, they don't get as much from the feedback if I leave it a, a longer period of time. Do, do, does that make sense? It does. But of course, if the feedback is so long that they no longer care about this, then the feedback is completely wasted anyway. So again, you've got these, these trade-offs. But if, if, the feedback is delayed, delayed and, the and the students do engage with it, and they have to, they have to figure out what it was that they did to get the answer wrong or wrong, and then, and then they get a feedback, feedback and help to get the answer, but that's a classic example of retrieval practice. And um, just before we, we wrap up, Dylan, two kind of big areas I just want to touch upon. And um, the first is directly related to that, uh, the desirable difficulties work. And that, that's about uh, testing. And one big change I've made to my teaching over the last 18 months, influenced by Bjork's work, is is I give my kids um, a, a, a daily, whenever I have the time, and I really try and make it daily, um, a low stakes quiz to kind of prep induce retrieval and take full advantage of the testing effect and i just wondered based on your reading of bjork's work and, and your wider reading are there any if, if teachers were looking to do these kind of low stakes quizzes or low stakes tests in their lessons are there any features that would be particularly important to allow us to take full advantage of the testing effect whilst not kind of dipping into negative things associated with testing like increased teacher workload anxiety for kids and so on are, are there any kind of practical things or practical features that if if teachers are doing low stakes quizzes that they should incorporate well i think there's one thing that i think we haven't really explored sufficient depth and that's what i would call no stakes tests as opposed to low stakes tests so if we've got a group of students that we've worked with and we've taught told them about the, the benefits of retrieval practice and practice testing then i think that we should actually get students to understand the value of self-testing so what I would encourage people to experiment with is the idea of giving students some teaching and then at the end they do a test and then you give the students the answers to the test and they mark their own work and they don't even have to tell the teacher how they did unless they want to. Mm. So that's that's what I call a no stakes test. And I think for, for, I think that would get rid of a lot of the negativity that's associated with testing as being surveillance and accountability. And no, this is, I'm not testing you for a, a score to put in my mark book. I'm giving you this test so that you can actually give yourself the, the benefits of practice testing. 
Um, the second benefit, of course, is you will also get the benefit of the hypercorrection effect if a student discovers that an answer they thought was correct is actually incorrect. The, the important thing to remember about testing is that the two major benefits, retrieval practice and hypercorrection, occur before a score is put in the teacher's mark book. Students, yes. students do not gain any additional benefit from testing when a teacher records the score in the mark book. And, uh, sorry, carry yeah, on. That was it. That was it. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you what, you, you, you've mentioned my um, my favourite phrase of the last 12 months, and that's hypercorrection effects. Um, D Dylan, I can't tell you how much I'm obsessed with this. And I, f I first stumbled upon it when I read your contribution to um, Carl Hendrick and Robert McPherson's uh, book, What Does This Look Like in the Classroom? When I read um, yours and Daisy's uh, uh, chapter um, on formative assessment. As I said, I'm obsessed with this hypercorrection effect. And the way I'm captured, the way I'm trying to take advantage of it is whenever I give my kids low stakes quizzes um, or even homeworks or any classwork or whatever, just before I project the answers up on the board or just before I collect the books in or whatever I'm doing, I ask students to give a confidence score between one and 10 for each answer, how sure they are about whether each answer is right or not. And this, this for me serves two purposes. One, it makes them check their work because I don't think there are three words that have less effect on students than check your answers. Mm -hmm. It just goes in one ear and out the other ear. But secondly, for me, it taps into this hypercorrection effect because you get kids put in oh i'm nine out of ten i'm absolutely dead certain about that one and then whenever they're shown when they see the answer that it's wrong and if i can direct them to check the, the make sure they focus their attention on any they got wrong that had high confidence scores next to it then they can get this i call it kind of a cognitive shock it's a real kind of bolt to them mm -hmm. like flipping heck i was dead certain about that so for me this hypercorrection effect it's it doesn't take much to implement at all. And as I say, confidence scores is my way of doing it. But it's had a real profound effect on, on, on my students. So I just wondered, are you as obsessed with it as I am? And is there much research into its effectiveness? There's quite a bit of research. Um, Janet Metcalf at Columbia, I think, is the person who came up with the term in the first place. And she's had lots of her graduate students researching this. But what I'm not clear about is whether the hypercorrection effect comes from the certainty that a student has that they're correct or the fact that they rate their certainty. So I, so I think the, the hypercorrection effect isn't universal. Some people have found some studies where it doesn't actually seem to hold very strongly. But I think we, it's, it's not clear to me whether you'd still get the hypercorrection effect if people were certain they were correct and find out that they're incorrect because you couldn't research it. So the reason that Janet Metcalf asks students to record their certainty is so that she can research whether their certainty predicts the learning that they get from finding a correct answer, what they thought was a correct answer, is actually incorrect. Yes. So, so, I, so that, 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 that's the sort of researchy point. The reason I'm going through this is because back in the previous decade, there was a lot of interest in getting students to rate their confidence in their answers. And there was a big debate in the psychometric community about whether this would provide additional information. So could you actually get more accurate scores for students by asking them to rate the certainty that their answers were correct, as well as giving the answers? And I was always a little bit worried about this because of the gender implications, that boys are often a lot more confident that they're correct than girls. And I didn't want 
girls to be penalised because they weren't as confident as the boys. So I think there's lots of issues here that are, that are wrapped up together. Um, but it, it, uh, for me, I think the, the major benefit of the hypercorrection effect is just almost like a kind of cautionary tale for students. And it helps you introduce ideas like growth mindset. You know, to say to students, if you're not getting it wrong, then this probably isn't hard enough for you because it's not making you smarter. So for me, the whole idea of hypercorrection is 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 part of the same picture. The, the, the errors are helpful. Um, the, the the difficulty is, and you described it very nicely. The real be- benefit of the hypercorrection effect seems to be almost like an embarrassment effect. I was so <laughs> I was so certain I was right, and now I'm wrong. So what we don't know is whether this is useful, because if teachers are routinely using the hypercorrection effect as part of their teaching and routinely asking the students to rate how confident they are with answers, students may start playing a game. So the difficulty is with all these kinds of non-cognitive measures, they can be gamed. The reason that maths questions work really well in finding out how much students know about mathematics is if you don't know the answer, you can't fake it. (laughs) But as soon as you have these kinds of non-cognitive measures, how confident are you? then students who are pretty smart, actually, most of the time, I I find, um, may actually figure out what it is that you want to see. And I guess that goes back to your point before about the stakes, though, right? If students know that it's not going to be recorded and they're not going to be, parents aren't going to be contacted and they're not going to be moved down a set or anything, and as long as you can build in the culture in the classroom, then actually this assessment and this confidence and the showing of the answers is a tool of learning and not a tool of assessment. Hopefully that won't be as big an issue, right? Right. Yeah. And, you know, I would want students demanding to be tested. Because if students think that their teacher is cool because the teacher doesn't give them tests, <laughs> that is the equivalent of educational malpractice. Because, <laughs> because practice testing is one of the most cost-effective ways of improving learning. So what, what we want is to inform our students to such a point where they actually complain if their teacher is not testing them. Because they know that teacher is not giving them the things that really help them learn. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's certainly the dream. And I guess, again, that that comes back to what we've talked about, just educating students in in terms of what is effective for them learning and what's going to make the difference. And final thing I just want to talk about, Dylan, and that's uh, it's it's interesting. I emailed you just when we were arranging this interview and I told you I think I was up to chapter seven in your book and I already had 2000 words of notes written and 100 questions. And you made the prediction that 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 number would just increase exponentially as I got to the later chapters in the book. And you're absolutely right. And I was, I've had to really constrain myself to the number of questions I ask you. And I've, I've got it kind of down to three for this final section of the improving the teachers that we have. And my first question to you, Dylan, is that you say that in 10 years, if teachers practice the right way, all teachers can be as good as the best. And I guess my, my question comes in two parts. Firstly, what should that practice look like? And the second question is, is there a danger that we we almost fail to learn the lessons about what works best for our students? And I mean that in the sense that is watching an expert teacher actually that useful for a novice teacher? Or is there something better that that novice teacher can be doing to become as good as the best? Well, let me take a step back to say where where that 10 year claim comes from. So although I think that a lot of the work of Andrews Erickson is misunderstood and overhyped, and I think he's wrong about certain things like chess 
I think the work of David Hambrick has shown pretty clearly that um, talent matters in a lot of areas. And so I don't think that it's, it's just practice. I don't think 10 years of deliberate practice will always make somebody as good as an expert in, in every field. Uh, I'm still open to, 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 to that question. I think the evidence is mounting that in a whole range of important areas of human endeavor, 10 years of working really hard at something will make you as good as some level of elite tier. Um, people are also talking about cross purposes very often. You know, when you're talking about elite, are you talking about the best three in the world? You're talking yes. about the 1500 people who happen to be grandmasters in chess. So, you know, there's a, there's a range of different definitions of what elite means in this context. But I think that the evidence is in a lot of fields, working really hard at something can make you very, very good at something. Now, why that might be, of course, is not clear. So, for example, you know, we know that 10,000 hours of practice on piano and violin makes you pretty good. But who will put in 10,000 hours of practice? Well, maybe it's the ones who feel they're getting somewhere from the practice. And therefore, we have again, we have this survivorship bias. We may actually be underestimating the role of talent because the talent is necessary for the practice to improve the performance sufficiently to make the person want to do more practice. So I think yes. these, these issues are all very complex to disentangle. But I am broadly convinced from the work in expertise that 10 years of working really hard at something can make you pretty good at something. And therefore, because teaching appears to share many of the characteristics of other things, and because this research finding is consistent across acting, table tennis, x-ray radiography, scuba diving, across a whole range of different fields of human endeavor, it seems to me likely that 10 years of working really hard at your teaching can make you pretty good. Um, the question then, of course, is what do you have to do to become very yes. good? And where I part company with most people is that I don't think that we know what deliberate practice looks like in teaching. So if you take the areas that Andrews Erickson talks about, yeah, violin, x-ray radiography, we know exactly what good people are able to do differently from, from people who are less good, and we're able to give them feedback to make them move forward. Right now, we don't have any definitions of good teaching. We don't know what makes some teachers four times as effective as other teachers. And therefore, the whole idea of deliberate practice, which is practice focused on the things that are known to improve performance, is not possible in teaching, because we don't know what makes good teachers different from less good teachers. So it's really, it's really much more complex in teaching because it's a change in long-term memory. What looks like good teaching in the short term might be really ineffective teaching in the long term. Yes. I, that said, I think, that, I think we're probably a bit too precious in teacher education about letting each teacher find their own little personal way of teaching. And I think we could actually do a lot better if we actually taught people to teach in a very scripted kind of rigorous way in the same way that artists learn how to paint before they learn how to be much more creative individuals. So, you know, Picasso and Salvador Dali and Mondrian could all paint pretty well and they learn to paint before they learn to see the world in a different way. And I think I'd be quite interested in an approach to teacher education that for the first two or three years of education would say, this is how you do it. Until you know better, this is the script that you follow. These are the ways that you do things. Um, 
And so I think that would then lead to a different kind of professional development. So, are we not in trouble, a bit of danger there, Dylan? So again, we, we've we've warned about the the dangers of prescribing ways of doing things, but but something like that, especially when you've got, I can only speak from my experience of, of maths education, but there's a real split in the the way teachers feel you should approach maths education again the broad terms you've got people who favor explicit instruction and the other um, end of the spectrum you've got those inquiry-based approaches so how how would we how would we work this how would we advise who would advise teachers as what the best way to teach a, a given lesson is where would we get the evidence for 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 what is effective well first of all i would regard a teacher as inadequately prepared if they couldn't do both so if you're saying direct instruction is the answer now what was the question again you're automatically onto a loser in the same way we think <laughs> investigations and inquiries is the answer now what was the question again so for me it's about making sure that people have a range of approaches that they've been taught how to use that they can then choose to deploy so there's, there's a there's a professional judgment element which is the right approach here and I probably wouldn't, wouldn't want to get into prescribing that. But I'd be very worried if somebody said direct instruction has no part to play in maths teaching because it's just wrong. It's just not true. There are several experiments that show that in, for certain aspects of mathematical achievement, direct instruction is far superior to any other approaches. And if you're not using it, then you are not able to do the best for your students. So for me, you know, um, so, so we would have inquiry-based teaching there. We would have direct instruction. We would have effective collaborative learning, for example. But, you know, take collaborative learning. Most teachers don't know that for collaborative learning to be effective, you need to have group goals and individual accountability. So most teachers yeah. set up group work in a way that allows one or two students to do the work for the whole group, in which case the learning is less satisfactory than it would be if the teachers just stood at the front of the class and talked to the kids. So, yes. so for me, the, you know, and I, I don't know what this curriculum for teacher education looks like, but I think it's not particularly, um, it's not huge, but th there are these key principles that you should know that in collaborative learning, for example, if one student not doing what they're meant to be doing doesn't screw it up for everybody else, then you haven't designed it properly. <laughs> and, and so and, so I, think, I think we can actually come up with quite a short list of things like that and the important point i'm saying here it's not perfect no this is this is what lee shulman calls the signature pedagogies of the professionals you look at the way we train doctors the way we train lawyers these aren't perfect but they're good enough as structures for learning and then we can get on with the learning and if if dylan if we've got a teacher listening here is perhaps in their first uh three years or five years of teaching and and they want they want to get really really good they they want to become an expert what practical things could they be doing? Should they be watching expert teachers? Should they be reading research? Should they be experimenting? What can they actually practically do to get become a better teacher? I think there's several things they could be doing. First of all is to think about learning as a change in long-term memory. So be, just becoming reflective about whether the students are, are retaining things that they're doing and if not, thinking about that. Then to, to experiment, to innovate, to push yourselves. And, and, and I would give the guideline of maybe, and it's maybe too much. If, if you've got a five period day, try to do something to push yourself to get better in at least one lesson each day. So you can't innovate across all your teaching. This, it's just simply too, too tiring. But just in each lesson that you teach, in each day, 
uh, take a, take one lesson and then take one segment of that lesson and say, here's something I'm going to try to do to improve my skill. Um, my own hunch is that probably teachers need fairly carefully structured support for the first three years of their career. So the idea is that you should be getting advice from people about the things that you should be developing in your practice for the first three years of your teaching so that you, so you're not kind of just reinventing the wheel or pursuing blind alleys like learning styles. But after that, I think that what, um, you know, I, I think that, I mean, for me, I would actually have a system a bit like the Singapore system where for the first three years, you're a beginning teacher. Yes. And once you can prove you are able to evaluate your own practice as well as somebody else can evaluate your practice, then you become a fully qualified teacher. So, you know, I'm sure you do this yourself when you observe other people. When I observe teachers teaching, the first question they ask me is at the end of the lesson, how did I do? <laughs> and I always say, how do you think you did? Because if they can tell me what was wrong with that lesson, my work here is done. Yes. They are a self-regulating learner. So for me, the focus of my support for beginning teachers is to help them get to a situation where they can look at their own practice as a teacher and move their own learning forward. Because once they're at that point, they can actually advance their learning without any external feedback from everybody else. It would be helpful occasionally, but they'll be able to push themselves when nobody else is pushing them. Got it. Got it. Last two questions about formative assessment, Dylan. And I'd, um, the reason we're not going to dig too deep on formative assessment is we, we had an interview a couple of years ago where we, we talked about it. Daisy Chrisadoulou's come on the podcast. Harry Fletcher Wood's coming on um, and to speak about his new book, Responsive Teaching. But there's just a couple of things I wanted to ask you in particular about formative assessment, Dylan. And the first is... Um, does the way that yours and Paul Black's work on formative assessment, the way it's been used in school, does it does it anger, upset, or disappoint you? Is there a right word for it? And the reason I ask it is because having read your foreword to, to Harry's book, and I think also in the foreword you wrote for, for Daisy's Making Good Progress book, certainly that kind of comes across that it, it's not been carried out and it's not been used or viewed as you and Paul intended. So What's your kind of relationship or your feeling towards formative assessment and how it's now being used in school, if that makes sense? Well, I think the interesting thing is that Paul Black and I have continued to use the term formative assessment, whereas others tend to call it assessment for learning. And in a way, we are lucky that the government decided to make assessment for learning the policy objective rather than formative assessment because they got it spectacularly wrong. And we can actually say <laughs> formative assessment is not that. Um, I... Uh, I think it's mild disappointment. So it's mild disappointment because I've always understood that politicians have different agendas from other people. You know, um, I think it was Jean-Claude Jean Juncker who said, uh, when you, um, we all, uh, he's a politician, and uh, he said, we all know what we need to do well, we haven't figured out how to get re-elected if we do it. <laughs> and, you know, rule one of politics is get into power and rule two of politics is stay in power. So <laughs> politicians yes. will take any initiative and they are always thinking about, well, and, and I think they, they want to do good, but it has to be within the constraints of, I want to do good in a way that advances my political agenda. So there's those, this political economy of thinking about how will this play out with my voters as opposed to the opponent's voters. And 
when the um, assessment for learning was being rolled into the key, key stage three strategy um, about 15 years ago, Paul Black and I were invited into Department for Education's offices in London, and we were asked you know, what, what the key principles were, and we were saying, well, here's the things you need to be doing. And one of the things we said uh, was, well, we need to de-emphasize scores and grades. And the reaction from the civil service was, we can't do that. The, the Daily Mail wouldn't like it. So, so the point is that I knew that there was very little prospect of the kinds of things that we knew would improve student learning being implemented within a political economy. And this was confirmed for me. You know, David Miliband became schools minister around about 2003. And you know, he embraced this idea of assessment for learning as basically being testing students more regularly and keeping more sophisticated spreadsheets this idea of tracking yes. student progress. And so, I, 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 we know it, it's hard to get access to ministers. I don't know if we could have changed his mind if we'd actually explained to him that why he was barking up the wrong tree. But it, this became a very easy thing to monitor. And so, my view is that assessment for learning, as envisaged by Paul Black and myself, was never implemented. Uh, so all we've learned is that if you do not implement a program, you do not get its benefits, which is not a particularly interesting thing to discover. Yeah, uh, but you still fully, fully believe in the work that you, you've done over the last 20, 30 years, however long it's been. It's, it's not it's not the work that was wrong. It was the, the implementation. Is, is that fair, Dylan? Well, I mean, it, but it, yes, but in a way, it's such a trivial insight. So one of the things we point out is that if a teacher needs to make a decision about what to do next with a group of 30 students... It's not a very good idea to rely only on evidence from confident, articulate, high-achieving students. <laughs> yes. The quality of your instructional decisions will depend on the quality of evidence you get. And if you're not hearing from the vast majority of the students, you can't possibly make good decisions. So in a way, this stuff is, is really rather trivial. And what's remarkable is the persistence of practices that are inconsistent with that fundamental insight. I think for me, it's, it's, it's the evidence bit that gets missed. I think the rest of the message comes through that you have to get responses from students, but it's, it's what those responses are. And unless for me, unless you've got evidence, whether it again, whether it be a diagnostic question, whatever it is, that's where teachers make wrong decisions. I think, that, again, I don't know if you'd agree with that. It's, it's the evidence part that's missed. It's the, it's the reliable um, kind of judgment of student understanding that, that that gets lost i think and that's kind of gets lost in translation right and i think that's why we 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 insist on calling this stuff formative assessment because when yes. you when you call this an assessment process when a teacher needs to decide what to do next with a group of students this in front of them you need evidence and the quality of the decisions you take is going to be influenced by the quality of evidence so it's, first of all, how good the evidence is. Are you asking the right questions about the deep misconceptions as opposed to the trivial features? And how extensive is your evidence? Are you hearing from the, from the majority of the students in the class or only from the students who are confident? So all we're trying to do is to basically say, your decisions are determined by evidence. Let's make the evidence as good as it can be. And let's think about the importance of getting the right evidence. Got it. Fantastic. Final question for me on formative assessment, Dylan. Um, you make the point in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, th I think you describe formative assessment as a skill that can be applied across many subjects and topics. But m my concern there is, I'm, 
I'm not convinced formative assessment is a skill in the sense that I think my ability to accurately formatively assess um, teaching fractions, I keep coming back to fractions, depends heavily on my knowledge of fractions and my experience of teaching fractions, my knowledge of misconceptions kids will have um, of fractions. That makes me a better teacher, better able to formatively assess. Whereas if you put me um, teaching something I'm less familiar with, my ability to, to formatively assess goes downhill rapidly. Would that be fair? And, and if so, is it the case that, again, formative assessment, just like problem solving and critical thinking, is actually domain specific? I think the important point is that formative assessment is trivially both domain specific and domain general. So let's say I end up teaching origami. I know nothing about origami, but I'm teaching origami to a class. OK, now. The difficulties that students have with origami, I do not know anything about. I don't know about the misconceptions yes. about origami. But you know what? I would be concerned to get evidence from every single student in the class rather than just the students who are always answering. So to that extent, my practice as a teacher is forever, has been forever changed, no matter what I'm teaching, by my awareness of the fact that correct answers from confident, articulate students are not a good guide to what's happening in the heads of the other students in the group. Yes. So, 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 you know, the idea of the, the broadening of the evidence, that's a, a domain general feature. The idea that grades can actually stop the learning, that's a domain general principle. What kinds of questions are worth asking in maths and history and science are very domain specific. So the point is, you know, and, and this is a criticism that people have made of the work that Paul Black and I have done. They criticize us for conceptualizing formative assessment as a domain general process, which just shows they haven't read what we've done. Because if we, if we thought that formative assessment was a domain general process, we would not have written booklets called mathematics inside the black box and yes. history inside the black box and science inside the black box and modern foreign languages inside the black box. So for us, it's always been obvious that it has to be conceptualized both as domain general and domain specific. And here are the trade-offs. When you conceptualize formative assessment as an entirely domain specific process, you then balkanize the work of schools. So it becomes a different process in every subject. Yes. And for what I've been arguing is let's have it conceptualized as a domain general process as far as we can so that students have a relatively coherent experience across different aspects of their school life. But let's recognize and honor the subject specificities that are necessary to make this work in a particular discipline. So for me, it, it's always been both domain general and domain specific. The question is, how general can we make it before we're actually banging square pegs into round holes? Got it. I guess my point is that and again, I don't know if you'd agree with this, that you you need a certain level of knowledge and experience of what you're teaching for formative assessment to be truly effective. Would that be fair? I don't know. I, my hunch is no. My, my hunch is that I would be, I mean, okay, I can't teach anything I know nothing about, like origami. But yes. my hunch is that I could be quite good, much better than I would have been 30 years ago, at getting students to articulate their confusions, their difficulties, the, just the understanding, of, the importance of understanding 
in something how important it is to listen to what students are saying and what the students are struggling, to give them a chance to talk, to give me that evidence that I can make sense of and say, that seems to me to be something that makes sense to me, you know, go for it. So for me, I think I would now be a much better teacher of anything that I can reasonably teach because of my understanding of the domain general principles. But over time, teaching that, I'll get better and better and better because I'll understand more examples of how to make it work for those students in that context. So, I, 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 I mean, and the other thing is, I think, I think it's a bit of the danger. One of the reasons I'm resisting this is because it's almost too easy to cop out and say, well, if you can't do this, if you if you're not an expert in the subject, you are somehow off the hook. You don't have to do yes. the normative assessment. And I'm yes. very, I'm very wary of those kinds of. Um, knee-jerk responses people wanting to say well i don't have to do that because i'm not an expert so for me you know uh, this is a teacher in greenwich i think said um, the whole idea of formative assessment is making the students voices louder and making the teachers hearing better and that's it <laughs> it's just you know it's about getting evidence to, so that you know Good teaching starts from where the students are. Students do not learn what we teach. You better find out what they did learn before you teach or teach them anything. That seems to me to be a fundamental, completely generic principle about learning. And obviously, once you to, when you have different things you want students to learn, then that'll play out differently in different subjects. But I guess, um, and this, I'll finish belaboring this point okay. after this. I, I absolutely promise. I guess my point is that um, I've certainly seen teachers go into lessons, try assessment for learning or formative assessment strategies such as diagnostic questions such as mini whiteboards and come out and say well that didn't work students didn't learn anything i couldn't diagnose their misconceptions and so on and that's not because it was the strategies letting them down that was because it was their knowledge of the the subject and their knowledge of misconceptions and their ability to not elicit information but to respond effectively to the information that they got if that makes sense so that that's why i make the point that you need the knowledge alongside the strategies to be really effective but that just shows that those teachers had no idea what they were doing. I mean, it's, it's nothing to do with subject knowledge. It's that they asked questions where they didn't know what they were going to do with information. And that's why I think it's so important we shift away from data-driven decision-making towards decision-driven data collection. So in other words, when before you ask your diagnostic question, you look at the answers and you say, well, yes. if student chooses B, I think that means they have this misconception. And if they choose C, I think it means they have this misconception. And so the teacher has decided what they will do with the evidence before they get the evidence. And so the, the failure of that kind of lesson is that the teacher was just jumping through some hoops because they thought that yes. was a good thing to do. They haven't understood the fundamental principle of formative assessment, which is that we need to respond to what students have actually learned before we can teach them anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, final question, Dylan, from me, and this is to take you right back to the very start of the book. Um, you say in the acknowledgement section, a sentence that I highlighted immediately. You say, most recently, I've, I've become acutely aware that I should have known more about the work of cognitive scientists such as Robert Bjork, John Sweller and Daniel Willingham much earlier in my career. So my final question for you, Dylan, is had you been aware of their work, how would that knowledge have changed your practice as a maths teacher? Well, first, I would have been much clearer that my job as a maths teacher is to build long-term memory. 
So I would have thought much more about Paul Kirshner's idea of learning as a change in long-term memory. I would have been much more aware of the importance of um, spiraling or uh, um, spacing of learning. Uh, I, I would have been much more clear about the role of knowledge. Uh, I would have been much more aware that students can be actively and productively engaged in something and learn absolutely nothing as a result. So it's very easy to be sniffy about activities like, um, as Daisy Christodoulou mentions in one of her books, students designing costumes for historical characters. <laughs> and, that, and, that's, and that's clearly a silly thing to do. And the students are engaged, but it's a, it's a silly thing for them to be engaged in. But I think much more profoundly from the work of John Sweller is this idea that students can be productively engaged in solving mathematical problems and learn nothing about solving mathematical problems. And I think that idea that learning is not the same as performance, which, which is a key element in Robert Bjork's work, I think would have changed a lot of my practice, that I would have thought much more carefully about the activities I was selecting and what changes they produced in students' long-term learning. Got it. Superb. Well, Dylan, I just want to thank you for two things. The first is for coming back on the podcast. It's been a pleasure and hopefully um, this won't be your final appearance on here because it always goes down an absolute storm with listeners. And from a selfish reason, I, I always learn loads and, and I love talking to you. So thank you for that. But, but secondly, thank you for writing this book because I was thinking about this. There's kind of three things it's going to do and make my life easier. The first is as a teacher, it's made me reflect on my practice. I think you've articulated really, really well and um, problems and solutions, summarized the research and told a really coherent picture. So it was great for me as a teacher, but also two other factors. I think it's going to make teachers conversations with line managers, non-subject specific line managers a lot easier. So me as a math teacher, when I have the deputy head, who's not a math teacher, but who line manages maths talking to me if she's read this book we have a shared language there because you don't you don't make it subject specific you don't make it overly technical it, it will help those conversations but also my, my hope is and I, and I don't know whether this is your hope as well but it'll make the dialogue between teachers and parents a lot easier as well so I whenever I started using Bjork's work and Sweller's work I had a lot of kickback from parents because all of a sudden kids marks were going down because short-term dip in performance lessons were harder homeworks were harder and so on but because this is a mass market book because it's not written for specialists if it gets the wider readership it deserves i just think it'll make parents and non-subject specialists more informed about what effective practice within schools and within lessons looks like which has to be a good thing so again i don't know if you agree with that but that that's certainly something that that i hope for the book that is the plan so let's hope it works <laughs> that's great well dylan william thank you very much you're welcome it's been a pleasure so there you have it there was my interview with dylan william i really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as i did i really love talking to dylan and i'm flipping lucky to be able to do this podcast and speak to people like dylan the bjorks doug lamar joe morgan bruno reddy chris bolton all my heroes who just teach me so 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 much 
So where do I begin with the takeaways from that interview? Well, when I was reading Dylan's book, it's no exaggeration here. I've got it, um, got it on the Kindle version and I have it kind of attached to Evernote where I keep all my notes. And <laughs> I did a little word count. I've made 4,500 notes um, on Dylan's book. I could bring it out as a book itself, actually. And I had hundreds and hundreds of questions to ask Dylan, and I tried to condense it down. And there was just things when I was reading the book that I thought, flipping heck, I, I really need to rethink my approach and my view on that. And hopefully um, I, I managed to cover most of that in the interview and you found it interesting. But I just want to pick out five particular points that, that I got from reading the book and which I, I then have, have thought a little bit more about in the hours since uh, I, I finished my conversation with Dylan. So the first is um, hiring better teachers. Really, really interesting this. Um, the fact that subject knowledge is important, of course it's important, and, and Dylan makes the point that you've got to be a subject expert to the level that you teach at. And I think in his book he also makes the point that it, it's useful to almost kind of know one level more than that. And I've always thought that's the key. So if I'm teaching GCSE, it's very helpful for me to have a knowledge of A-level because I know that then I need to build in the foundations and I know how to build in the foundations for successful transition from Key Stage to A level, so it, it stops me teaching the shortcuts that are going to make kids fall apart a little bit whenever they uh, reach more complex mathematics. But the point I wanted to emphasize here is that, that Dylan made the point that all right, subject knowledge is important, but so too is a love of children. And if he was a head of department, head of maths or whatever, and he was interviewing somebody, that's what he'd be looking for. Not somebody who says that they love doing maths and they're passionate about maths, of course, that's important but they love working with kids. They love helping kids learn and enjoy their subject. And it reminded me of, of something Dylan said in my 2016 podcast interview with him, when he really emphasized that relationships between teachers and students are key. And I think that there's a danger whenever, like I'm on, I mean, I can hardly talk myself, with this kind of obsession with cognitive science and psychology and memory and all this kind of stuff, that we forget that such a fundamentally important part of teaching is the relationships that teachers have with students. Because whether we tie that in with motivation or whatever, it's it's that that helps us communicate our ideas effectively to kids because they want to learn for us. And also, if I know about my kids and I have a good relationship with my kids, I know when I need to tweak things, when I need to come down hard on them, when I need to ease off on them. And it just, forget all that, it just makes the job more fun. It's, it's, just, it's just a great feeling walking into a class of 25, 30 kids that you genuinely care about. It, and so I just wanted to emphasize that, that I think there's a danger sometimes we overlook the importance of relationships and Dylan's been on this podcast twice now and brought that that up both times and the next thing is class sizes now as I said in the interview it, it's one of those things that it seems like it should definitely work and again Dylan's not saying it doesn't work um, and he's making the point that it's it's incredibly expensive to do but I think the more subtle point is that it, it, it might not improve student outcomes. And it really made me think this. Um, my, my year 11 class, I think, oh God, I, sh I should know how many are in there. Let's say there's 26. It's probably not It's probably not that. Would it make a huge difference to me if, if I lost four of those kids, if four of those kids got taken out? Um, <laughs> not taken out in a kind of a violent way, but just, just uh, taken out of, of the class. Would it make a difference to, to how I taught? Well, 
possibly more so in the past, but, but now I'm moving more towards this, this model of explicit instruction that I outlined in my book and I've talked about in, 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 over the pod, in the podcast over the last few years. I'm not too sure because if I'm doing silent teacher and example problem pair and show call and then intelligent practice, and I'm doing a lot of that leading from the front, would it make a big difference to me to, to have uh, four, uh, four fewer students in my class? I, I'm not so sure it would. Um, possibly it would whenever I'm walking around the class and the kids are doing intelligent practice or perhaps a more open-ended task. That's when it's going to make a difference. But it again, it's just a, a really simple but important point that if we reduce class sizes, but then don't support teachers with how to make the most out of that class size reduction, it's unlikely to have a big impact on the kids that remain in the class. But also on top of that, what about the kids who come out of the class? Who's going to teach them? If the quality of teacher isn't as good as the, the class that they've been removed from, it's probably going to lower student attainment. So it just makes me think that that reducing class sizes isn't necessarily the, the kind of be all and end all and, and teaching a class of 20 compared to teaching a class of 25 for me anyway probably isn't going to make a world of difference and um, the next thing I wanted to just touch upon is textbooks isn't it amazing how perceptions change I mentioned in the interview there Whenever I first started teaching, if you dared get a textbook out in your lesson, you were considered a crap teacher. That, that's, that's just the way things worked. Um, and again, it goes back to, to that, that kind of preconception of teaching from the textbook. The teacher just sat down on his desk having a cup of tea whilst the kids are working their way through an exercise. But again, if you read Lucy Crean's book, Cleverlands, or you listen to my, my interview with her, textbooks are a feature of these high-performing regions. And there are some wonderful textbooks out there. And Dylan made the point where when I um, argued about cost, that actually in the long run, when you compare it to photocopying costs, they are, probably do work out cheaper having textbooks. I think the problem is you've, you've got to pay that cost up front, whereas photocopying is one of those things that just kind of dra drains your department budget day by day, week by week, and so on. Whereas a textbook, a big set of textbooks is a big outlay. But I think there's another issue coming into play here. Maybe this is just specific to UK math teachers. And that's a lot of the textbooks for the new GCSE spec and uh, this current year for the new A-level spec have been pretty crap, to be honest with you. Um, I think there was a rush uh, to get them out from a business perspective, to be one of the first to have a textbook for the new GCSE. There was, it was a time of great uncertainty for math teachers. We wanted guidance. We wanted somebody to say, this is, this is uh, the content that's going to be on this new specification. So that it was a great opportunity for textbook producers, but I think some of them just came out too fast. There was mistakes in them. The order didn't make sense. <laughs> some of them had the wrong content in them. It was terrible. So I think that's almost kind of given textbooks a bad name again, just when they were coming back into the fore. But yeah, the, the more I think about it, a good textbook, it's, it's a godsend. And how many people on this, this podcast have, have referenced the old SMP books? Um, absolutely wonderful. There's some absolute classic textbooks out there. And I think back to my A-level days. In fact, if I look behind me here, I've still got my A-level textbook in there, the classic Bostock and Chandler one. Good textbooks are absolutely wonderful. So hopefully, 
hopefully, um, if we can get some really good ones out there, uh, Dylan made the point that, that the evidence suggests it improves uh, weaker and kind of average teachers. Um, and I think it would be just a great benefit to, to, to oh God, it's making me sound like I'm saying I'm a good teacher here, but more experienced teachers like myself, because it's just useful and handy to see how somebody has sequenced activities and sequenced the scheme of work. It's just really useful information. And sure, we may then choose to adapt it and tweak things, but it's just great to have that as a baseline. So bring back the textbooks. That's what I'm saying. Um, the next point I wanted to talk about was, was just on number sense and facts. And this is real hot at the moment with, with Joe Bowler making that point in the tweet about timed conditions. And I really hope to get Joe on the podcast to talk about this a little bit more. And Dylan made the point that actually um, kids knowing number facts or times table facts or whatever under time conditions is important because that's the only way that you can test with a reasonable degree of accuracy whether they are actually recalling it or whether they're deriving it. And again, if we look at Sweller's work on cognitive load theory, if, if facts like that, like six sevens of 42, are automated, it's going to free up space in working memory to allow students to do more with that fact than if they're having to either count up on fingers or or derive it from knowing what three sevens are and doubling it and so on. Um, but I just wanted to emphasize a point, and I think I made this point when I interviewed Lucy um, from, from Cambridge Mathematics. And so apologies if I'm repeating myself here, but I think it's important to say, um, for many years, uh, when I first um, uncovered the work of Joe Bowler, I was obsessed with her number talks. And to a certain extent, I still am, but with a little kind of precursor in there, a little word of warning. So for those of you who aren't aware, number talks are whenever you put up a calculation for students. So the classic one is 18 times 5. And you say to students, right, I want you to think how you'd work that out. And then I always say, I want you to write down how you've worked it out. And then as a class, we compare different methods. And if we take 18 times 5, some students do 9 fives and then double it. Some students will do 20 fives and then take off to lots of five and um, lots and lots of different ways 18 times 10 and then halve it and so on and it's fascinating it's a really really uh, useful activity for some students and, and this is my point um, I, I experimented for a whole year doing these number talks and I had a top set year seven and a bottom set year seven and what I found was that the top set year seven got more out of this than the bottom set year seven. The top set year seven were breaking apart numbers, putting them back together again in weird and wonderful ways. They were fascinated when some ways worked and some ways didn't work and so on. Whereas my bottom set year seven, they didn't seem to make as much progress or, or develop as much throughout it. And since reading uh, cognitive work on cognitive load theory and thinking more about memory, when I look back on that now, I think it's related to the point that sometimes students don't learn to solve problems by solving problems. Because whenever I give students something like 18 times 5 and ask them to, to, to come up with different ways of doing it, say for example they think, right, well, maybe I could do 9 times 5 first and double it. If they don't know what 9 times 5 is, or if they're having to count up on their fingers to try and figure out what 9 fives are, all of a sudden, working memory is getting filled up, and then can they remember how why on earth they were doing nine times five to begin with? Or perhaps more importantly, can they then remember or think 
what they then have to do with nine fives to get the answer to 18 fives. And it almost becomes a multi-step problem. Whereas if you've got that automated, you know what nine fives are, it's okay, let's halve it. Now I've got nine fives, right? I know nine fives are 45. Now I've got capacity left to look back at the original problem, look back at the calculation I've done and make connections between the two. And I certainly saw, and this is just purely anecdotal on a ridiculously small sample size. I just saw my top set year sevens who have those facts automated, making those connections a lot better. And where I've had more success with number talks is where I've held them back a little bit. I haven't dived straight in with them um, in the first weeks or months of the year until I've got times table facts sorted, until I've got number bonds sorted. And then students, I believe, can benefit from that playing around with numbers, flexibility, number sense, whatever you want to call it. So that's just my view, but I, I want to dig into this a lot more um, and hopefully I can get Joe on the show. And the final thing I want to reflect on is, is Dylan's point that it takes 10 years to become an expert. And whenever I think about it now, so I'm in my, and I lose track here, I think it's my 14th year of teaching. I genuinely, genuinely, genuinely feel further off being an expert now than I ever have been. The only thing I cling on to is that hopefully this is the Dunning-Kruger effect uh, in full operation. If you'd have asked me, uh, I don't know, five years ago, four years ago, was I an expert teacher? I'd have probably said, yeah, to be honest with you. That was a kind of cocky teacher. I was. Um, I'd been pretty successful in my career. And the kids seemed to enjoy my lessons and so on. It's only now when I've read more and spoke to more people, people far more knowledgeable and experienced than me, that I realised, flipping egg, I was doing quite a bit wrong. And I'm very, very, very far away from where I want to be. And I need to be for my students. And now learning knowledge of uh, formative assessment from Dylan, desirable difficulties in memory from the Bjorks, cognitive load theory from Sweller, speaking to all my podcast guests, have enabled me to develop a model of teaching, um, explicit instruction to introduce concepts and get uh, kids practicing concepts that I'm really, really comfortable with. And crucially, it's also given me the model then to then bring in inquiry and investigations and problems at a point when I believe my students are going to benefit most for them. But I'm still not there yet and I've still got lots of things to think about. And it, again, it just makes me think, and for any teachers out there who, who perhaps are, are earlier on in their career, and are thinking teaching's hard. Yeah, it, it flipping is, but it is, it's genuinely the best job in the world. And I believe the only way that, that you can get better, and it goes to, straight to what Dylan said, is to pick a lesson a day or even a lesson a week and try something different. Have a reason for trying it. Perhaps you've, you've seen somebody mention it on Twitter. Perhaps you've read about it. Perhaps it's a piece of research that you've adapted. Perhaps you've seen a colleague do it. Try something different, but then crucially, take a step back after it and reflect. If it went well, why did it go well? Could it have gone better? If it went badly, does it mean it's a bad idea or did it go bad for a different reason? Were, were some kids playing up? Was it the wrong time of day or so on? And it's those moments of reflection and small steps that I believe help us on the path to expertise. Whereas if you suddenly say, right, from Monday, I'm changing my starters, my main, how I talk to kids, my assessment policy, my formative assessment policy, it's too much. And <laughs> it goes back again to what Dylan says. If things go badly, you've too many variables. So it's very hard to pinpoint exactly where they've gone badly. And likewise, if things go well, is it everything that's contributing to it or, or not? So you've got to isolate those variables. So I think changing one thing at a time can really help us on this path towards expertise. 
So there were my reflections on Dylan William 2018 uh, interview. As I say, go out there and snap up Dylan's book. I promise you won't be disappointed. And also, um, as I tried to make the point when I was wrapping up with Dylan, it's written in a non-technical language that makes it accessible to lots and lots of different people. So spread the word um, about it. Um, all that remains for me to do is once again thank Dylan. Um, hopefully we can get him back on the podcast um, again in the future. Um, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout this show. And a huge, huge, huge thank you to you, my loyal listeners, especially those who've been with me since the start. Um, I know there's a decent number of you that have listened to every episode of this, flipping it. That's, that's about 110 hours of my annoying voice. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you for those who came on board after the first Dylan interview and have, have decided discovered this podcast and even as recently as last week and last month I still get people on Twitter saying oh I've just found this podcast I'm really enjoying it and if you like it and you get a chance to leave a quick review on iTunes I'd really appreciate it and if you get a chance to spread the word um, about this podcast that would mean the world to me as well. I have got some phenomenal phenomenal guests lined up for the next few episodes I cannot wait to share them with you but for now thanks so much for listening you take care of yourselves and farewell for now.